0: Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back doing another episode, and we're doing something a little different. Rather than tackling just one movie at a time, and we go beat by beat of a movie in excruciating detail, just look at the Halloween franchise that my friend Mike and I have been doing, and we've been talking about the movie. The episodes are much longer than the movies themselves. But today we're going to be talking about the entire franchise, and this is coming off before the... New release of Mission Impossible Fallout, so I figured to talk about the entire Mission Impossible franchise in a retrospective leading up to that movie. And like every episode, I have a guest with me, and here who is a person who is a very big supporter of the show and a great podcaster in his own right, Mr. Zaki Hassan. Welcome to the show, Zaki.
1: Thank you so much. Good morning.
0: Good morning to you too. Uh, I know this is something that we've been we've been talking about this for months. I think it's like as soon as like the new year started, this is like the idea was kicking around to do this episode, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, and so we were really excited to do this. So, enough diddly dally anymore. Let's jump into our retrospective on the Mission Impossible franchise right now. Okay, before we actually get into the movies themselves, I have to ask you, do you have any experience with the TV show before you saw any of the movies?
1: Yeah, yeah, I I actually grew up watching the TV show, which is, you know, for for people of my age that's that's weird because I grew up in the 80s and you know, reruns uh, weren't airing, but I was I lived in Saudi Arabia during the 80s and the early part of the 90s and so they showed the 60s series and also the the re, the not the rebooted show, but they brought it back in the '80s. So I, I had watched both of those. Uh, you know, by the time the first movie came out, so I was very familiar with the show, and I remember very distinctly being in high school and being super excited that a Mission Impossible movie com- was coming out. And most of my classmates were like, "I don't know what that is," you know. <laughs> So so I remember hearing about the movie and hearing Tom Cruise was attached and I was like, "Oh, is he going to play Jim Phelps?" and 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 following all the development stuff and uh so I I had a unique experience I would say with the first movie because it was fandom of the the franchise but also sort of a disappointment with what uh, the movie did with some aspect of of the of the legacy, let's say.
0: That's understandable and it is curious like um, when they came back with that rebooted series in the eighties, was that like with the same actors from the sixties show? Uh,
1: so the, the, the rebooted series, they brought back Peter Graves, uh, as Jim Phelps and they had him, uh, you know, cause he, he was, uh, there for, I think six of the seven, uh, seasons of the original show. And then when they came back, uh, there were two seasons in the eighties and they had it like Phelps had retired, but he comes back and none of the, I think, um, I'm trying to remember. I one of the characters on the show was Greg Morris. One of the actors on the show is Greg Morris, who's the son of uh, um, Phil Morris, who was on. Wait, no, Greg Morris is on the original show, and his son is Phil Morris. So uh, he played his he played his dad's son on the show, and that was like the connection. I don't know if that what I just said makes sense. I think I. I think I. His his dad was on the original show, and then the son was on on the new show. And the and the son is you know if you've seen Seinfeld, he was Jackie Chiles. Oh, okay. And he was he was um, you know uh, Martian Manhunter on Smallville.
0: Oh wow! I never I never put that together. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I've only watched Smallville like. A few episodes here and there. I know it's got a huge fan base, but like, I was not. I was not really into Superman at the time when that show was on. And I think I do owe it to myself to go back and at least watch the first few seasons before I know there is like many TV shows. There is a tipping point for some yeah. fans, but I know like it gets it gets super comic book heavy with so many characters in the, the latter half, and I'm just like, well, maybe that makes up for Red Kryptonite and like how many times like uh like. Clark's identity's almost revealed or anything like that. <laughs> right. yeah. um, and so, when the movie, what, what was your feelings going up into seeing the first movie, like going to the theater? Did you see the first movie in theater?
1: I, I did not see it in the theater. I actually, I got uh, I got it as a christmas gift of uh, my friend Cory Hebein gave it to me uh and on v h s and I was very excited to watch it finally and This is you know that sort of blissful era before the internet where you weren't just being bombarded by spoilers so i even though it had been a few months uh i I went in basically cold you know all, all i all I knew was uh, that that John Voight was Jim Phelps, and I, you know, and I knew obviously uh, Tom Cruise was a new character, and so the twists that that happened in the movie were a genuine surprise to me.
0: Awesome, yeah. And, and with my feelings, the first time I saw it, it was actually my cousins had the VHS copy of it, and I remember I, I think it was like you, I think it was around Christmas time that we went upstate in upstate New York um, to visit them. And I remember, I think that was one of the gifts they had gotten was, was Mr. Possible in VHS. And that's one of the movies we did watch. And like, we ended up quoting like red light, green light in terms of <laughs> the, uh, the explosive gum. And, and of course we're always, once he got a pool, we tried like, like underwater trying to do like the, the Langley, like slow descent to the bottom of the pool of it. Like how Tom Cruise does when he repels down <laughs> in the, the clean room trying to get the knock list. But and so the first movie released in 1996, directed by Brian De Palma and written by David Koepp and Robert Towne, produced by Tom Cruise and Paul Wagner. And this is the start of like their um, production partnership and along with Paramount. And yep. it was a very different kind of thing because it's curious, like, all right, Paramount owned the TV rights to the Mission Possible TV series. And of course, that like Tom Cruise wanted to make it into a movie, and and like and Hollywood hoped to get a franchise out of it, but obviously, make the first movie good. It's just curious that last one, of the previous times of Paramount turning the TV shows into a movie, they also tapped Brian De Palma to do that with The Untouchables.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I realize, and I, and I and I remember, by the way, that when I heard De Palma had signed on to direct, I was super excited because of that, because of The Untouchables. Like I, I wasn't as familiar. With you know, I hadn't seen you know, Carrie and, and some of the others, other stuff at that time, so for me, I knew him as the Untouchables guy, so I was like, Oh, it's great,
0: yeah. I mean, that, that I, I probably think I saw Untouchables later, um, after this, but it was, I think, these two move those two movies were like my first foray into being a Brian De Palma fan, sure, I, and so much so that I have two giant posters on my wall of both Blowout and Dress to Kill. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I even really do enjoy body double, even though it is, it is, I, I think it's a lot, It's a lot more satire than people give it credit to. But also if you want a line, like kind of sp- of all the things you want to make fun of to Palma for, you can find them in body double. <laughs> um, but, sure. <laughs> yeah. And, but then you think of like the fact that, like, all right, he's coming off of like Raising Cain, and uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, and so uh-huh. like those are not big hits, and yet they w- they gave him this huge budget for this movie. I guess that was for the the power of Paul Wagner and Tom Cruise, and the story of the first Mission possible is that Ethan Hunt and his team, and along with uh, Jim Phelps, are try to get the knock list, whereas all the IFMF agents' names and their code names in Europe and America, uh, in Europe, trying to find out. If this person IMF is actually a rat, but the team is killed with the exception of Hunt and the IMF think he's responsible for this. And so the race continues to try and prove himself that he is innocent and find out who set him up. And now I'll ask you, what are your overall feelings of this movie years later?
1: So I, I rewatched this yesterday uh, for the first time since 1996. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it has been, it's, I mean, it's been literally 22 years since I saw it, and I'll tell you, the reason I didn't revisit it is because I was so turned off by uh, uh, the heel turn for Jim Phelps, uh, that it was just, it was one of those things where I was like, you know what, it was an enjoyable movie, but I don't like what they do with the character, I just don't feel the need to revisit it, and uh, so I rewatched it yesterday with the freshest of fresh eyes, and uh, you know, honestly, just being uh, being up front, I will never understand uh, why they did that to the Phelps character. I think there's about fifteen other things they could have done that would have been just as effective without just sort of turning the the hero of the old show into a heel. But it's a damn good movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I understand because I know that like moviegoers f- overall were really enjoyed the movie, with with the exception, like well, I guess, with it being confused by the plot and the. Integration of early internet into the movie, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I never had a problem with even as a kid. I'm like, yeah, I kind of imagine like they're sending messages back and forth, and he's doing it in different languages. Like, as a child, I understood that maybe I'm just more, I guess I was just kind of like open to the idea of like, all right, it's kind of like passing notes in school, but you're doing it electronically. That's how I yeah. kind of figured it as a child watching it, sure. But yeah, I can understand people who are fans of the show going in and being like, oh. Okay, I was not expecting that, and as people who are fans of characters is being changed in, from popular franchises in one medium to another, that still happens to this day, so I, I, I can't say it's a, a new thing or a unique thing, that still happens, and I can understand where you're coming from, They're like, oh,
1: this guy was my hero on that show, and now he's the bad guy in this. Yeah. Yeah, it was it – was, I, I remember at the time – and again, just to be clear, it, it, this was not a situation where I'm like, screw this movie. I'm never going to watch it again. It was just – I was like, oh, that sucks. And then I just never got around to ever revisiting it. I, I wasn't making some kind of like a protest statement. Uh, but definitely at the time, I was like it, – it was odd to me because I was, I was like the people who know the character are the ones who are going to be upset about it. And e- anyone who's coming in with this movie, it won't matter to them. So I was like either, either give Phelps like a heroic exit. And then, and then leave, leave you know, open the door for, for Tom Cruise to take over. Or just, you know, may, every other movie is like, oh, IMF guy number 237 is a traitor. <laughs> like, that's the whole – that's every movie, right? Just make it – why did it have to be Phelps? That was my thought at the time. Again, I want to be very clear. I don't care anymore. I'm You know, it's – what are you going to do? I mean, we're talking about a 22-year-old movie. Uh, but the the one thing that really uh, stood out to me uh, re-watching it uh, now was – uh, first of all, it's so stylistically confident. It is such a De Palma movie, just through and through. Uh, so, you know, the 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 bit where he's where where Ethan is piecing together what actually happened. He's talking to Phelps, and while he's talking to Phelps, we're seeing Ethan's sort of you know his memory as he's putting together the the sequence of what went down. Uh, so that's like that's like a Brian De Palma original. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, yeah. And the fact that, like, yeah, like, that's the one good thing about this franchise um, compared to other spy franchises going on at the time in the 22 years since this movie came out, that each movie has a voice from its filmmaker. Totally, And, like, the one thing, like, one other big franchise you can really compare this to, you compared this to the Bond franchise. Like, you think GoldenEye, like, yes, that is Martin Campbell's movie, for sure. And you can kind of tell that's a Martin Campbell movie because of how intense that movie is. You compare that to, obviously, Casino Royale, and, like, it's the stylistic things there are very – there are things that are similar there. You look at Tomorrow Never Dies through Dying of the Day, it is kind of – it is journeyman, it's workman-like. There's nothing really yeah. stand out with them. Like, there are certain set pieces and moments, but – even Pierce Brosnan doesn't remember. He's like, I remember Goldeneye. The rest kind of all blend together. And that's <laughs> kind of bad that this person who was there on the day can't remember what production from one to another. Right. And here with De Palma, like, yeah, we have split diopter shots. We have unique, like, point of view shots. We have Dutch angles. We have crazy Dutch angles, like, in conversations. Yeah. And I, I love the moment you, you brought up of when Ethan's putting together the actual what, he th- what Phelps is telling him and what is actually happening. I love Danny Elfman's score so in do. that moment.
1: Yeah. And, is it a- and, and, and and Tim, I mean, just ha- Danny Elfman uh, is such a unique presence in this movie, and I think that's what sets this movie apart from the other ones. I, was, I, I, I noted yesterday watching this movie, it felt a little like watching the first Fast and Furious uh, and comparing it to where the series is now. You know, because I feel like the first Mission Impossible is really distinct from from where it has ended up. Um, you know, it's it's much more grounded. Uh, it's it's not as focused on really the big Gonzo stunts. Uh, you know, I, the the I think to me the one of the most memorable sequences of the whole thing is is the clean room, which is the opposite of a big crazy stunt sequence. It's just Tom Cruise alone in a room. You know.
0: And it's a sequence that you end up holding your breath for because it's so quiet.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And the, like there's two sequences in this entire franchise that you end up holding your breath in tension for. I'll bring up the other one later. But it's curious that you bring up the Fast and Furious franchise because it's very much akin to the Fast and Furious franchise where, for lack of a better term, like box office-wise and kind of like critically, like for the most part, it's gotten better as it's gone along. Yeah. And you could argue, like the better sequel, like better movies have come from the sequels rather than the original that started it off. It's curious to see how these franchises mirror each other. Yeah. And so I'll ask you, like, is there one particular sequence in this movie that you really enjoy? And like, the, is there favorite character moments that you enjoy in the first Mission Impossible?
1: Well, there's a couple. I, I think when when um, when Cruz is is in that meeting with Henry Cherney, uh, you know, you mentioned all the canted angles. I mean, to me, that that's a great example where De Palma is setting us up to think Henry Churney is going to be the bad guy in this thing, and and it helps that Henry Churney is Henry Churney, and that's kind of this, <laughs> he's playing a Henry Churney character, you know. <laughs> but you know, the like you said, the 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 red light, green light thing in, in the, when he uses the gum in in that sequence, I, I always yeah, uh, I remember uh, uh, Paul Shirey, who I'm sure you know, uh, wh- when I used to hang out. That was like his his thing. He'd always be like, Zachy, you've never seen me upset," you know. <laughs> I, so whenever I watch the movie, whenever I see that sequence, uh, yesterday that just came flooding back to me, just twenty years ago, hanging out with Paul. But um, the the clean room sequence uh, that you just said, and also actually, I thought the climax uh, on top of the the train with the helicopter, man, that was great. Like it's clearly you know it's you're watching these actors in front of a green screen and everything else but i was just loving the fact that it's not heavily digital you can tell they use miniatures they 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 did a lot of practical stuff to make it happen and i think it it really works well
0: for sure i mean i think the the franchise itself is built on minimal digital technology and there's like there's a, because there is a strict adherence to like analog filmmaking even <laughs> Oh, excuse me. Even to the point that Tom Cruise does not like shooting movies on digital; he prefers shooting on movies on film. And the fact that he does so many crazy things from his movies, and he's a producer on all of his movies for the most part, he'll insist on we're shooting on 35 millimeter film or IMAX or what have you, or 65 mm specifically. And there is a certain tactileness to these movies because yes. of that. And even the like the train sequence, yeah, you can definitely tell they're all on blue screens; they're on wires, but. It's, you're so invested in that character in that moment. I think with the visual effects still hold up, the score and everybody acting that scene, like even that moment where, um, when Jean Reno is trying to like sky hook uh, Phelps off the train and Ian hooks the, line to the train itself and he screams at Renault before being kicked off the side like it's it's that's one of the moments of the movie that really stick out to me like I have no idea why he does that it's like is it a (laughs) war cry I guess I'm not sure but it is unique and of course when the movie uh when the helicopter crashes and the blade stops inches away from Hunt's neck and then we have the one conductor look up realize what just happened and then immediately faints Right. Perfect button <laughs> to the end of that sequence.
1: Yeah. And it's 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 fun. again, like I said, it's funny to watch the film now knowing uh, where the series has gone. And you, you see all, you see which pieces uh, they put into place here in this one that carried forward. And obviously Ving Rhames, uh is like the guy. I mean, other than other than Tom Cruise, who were like, oh, there he is. There's Luther. He's there right from the jump, you know, and he's awesome. Right from the start.
0: Exactly, because I think Ving Rames can't help but be awesome. That's true. Uh, I mean, like, hell, like, when we're thinking about this franchise, I was thinking about Ving Rames, and I was like, what are the really big things outside the Mission Possible franchise that I really know him for? And for some reason, this sense memory of, I remember the Kojak TV series that he was Kojak on, like, 13 years ago, like, that came back to me. I was like, (laughs) wow. I'm like, wow, USA, swinging a miss right there. I'm sorry. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, he was in Dawn
1: of the Dead he was good
0: in that yeah he was fantastic in Dawn of the Dead because he's not for the most part like the first act he's not a likable person he's just he is being
1: so, he's protecting himself first and foremost in that movie yes yeah that that movie does not get nearly enough credit it's so good
0: yeah I, I know like because I, to some people it is sacrilege to remake Romero's classic Romero's classic is the definition of a classic I'll never take that away from that movie is not my, my, it's not my—it's not my personal favorite. In that first trilogy, Day of the Dead is still my favorite. Um, but like, yeah, well, what Snyder and James Gunn—I know two polarizing characters to talk about these days. Um, right. Yikes! Yeah, exactly. So it, I know that's like—it's—it's it's a weird thing to talk about. But I think it makes its own message and has its own kind of symbolism and things of what's going on at that time. But with Mission Impossible, my, I think. Like you, my favorite sequence is the clean room sequence, and it's because it's like every scene in a a movie or TV show, you have character A wants this thing, character B or environment or what have you wants this. Conflict ensues, one of them wins, and the best way you can do that is a reversal of fortune, where we have, okay, he has to be quiet here. Oh, but there's a rat coming, and he's sweating, and so... And so John kills the rat and almost drops him, like catches him in the last second. At the same time, the attendant that works in that room is coming back from being sick is, is that Hitchcockian suspense techniques used perfectly here. And it's obviously it became a great sense of parody for years to come because everybody had to do that, that wire
1: sequence like, right.
0: afterwards.
1: Yeah, it's I, I was I was watching I watched uh, with my kid. He's he's eleven, and that the clean room scene was the one where I, I you know kind of glanced over at him, and he was the most just enraptured. Like he he was like he said he was he wasn't even breathing, you know. And I'm like, man, if it's working, it's mojo on an eleven year old. It's doing something right.
0: Yeah, it's something that still holds up. I mean, that that's that's I, I remember I showed it to a friend of my uh, co-host Dakota because he had never seen it before. We had watched the movies together, and he was just like. All right, well, because he's, he's not that big of a Tom Cruise fan, like, like personally, but it's like, give it a shot. We'll see how the first one is. And same thing, like you. I looked over at him, like, he just had, like, his hands up to his, like, chin just watching that <laughs> sequence. i like, oh, yeah, like, yep. Like, my work is done. There's nothing weak. I, I, like, anything that happens afterwards, I think it's worth it right here. And one other uh, character I want to um, talk about before we move on is... Um, the character of Max, played by Vanessa Redgrave, and I think she is fantastic in this movie as a, I guess you would almost say an antagonist here in this movie. But it's that playful scenes that she has, or scene, yeah, two scenes that she has with Hunt that I really enjoy. It's just like Tom Cruise is being his charming self, and you're like, and it's all like, oh, who's gonna get the one ups on each other in this scene? And that is something that it's a lot of fun to ju- watch as a viewer.
1: Yeah, and and I think uh, the series in general has been very smart about getting these really great actors um, for Cruise to play off of, you know. And and I mean, at this point, uh, we sort of take for granted how you know we we take Tom Cruise seriously. But at that time, he was still a lot of people still looked at him as this young punk upstart, you know. Uh, And I think I think for him, you know, this was his first time producing. And I think the way he approached it was really brilliant because he stacked the movie from end to end with quality uh, ingredients, uh, both behind the camera and in front of the camera. And and you see, I mean, Vanessa Redgrave in a movie like this, just I mean, she just adds gravitas.
0: Oh, for sure. And it's like it could so easily become such a. A narcissistic project where like I am the star, I am the yes. brightest sun, a bright star in the system. Everything has to revolve around me. It doesn't seem like that. It's like, no, we're going to tell the best story possible. And we're going to get the best technicians in front and behind the camera to make the best movies possible, which I think is incredibly admirable on Cruz's part.
1: Yes, totally agree.
0: And one last thing I'll say before we move on is like Henry, um, I can't pronounce his last name. says, Ch- uh, journey, uh, Ch- Chir- Churney, excuse me. Um, like you said, playing Henry Cherry, like, is just playing himself in this movie? But, <laughs> like, himself. he, but he's perfect at that. Like, it, it is so – anything that he shows up in, especially this, like, oh, like, can't take my eyes off him. Like, he commands every scene he's in. And I even love the moment, like, after they bra- bro- broke into Langley, and they're – it's that really great shot. It's him talking with the – I guess his underling with the – um, clean room attendants in the background it's a split diopter shot and he's talking about nobody's going to know about this this never happened it was simply a fire uh, alarm and what about this guy I want him to be monitoring a station in Alaska mail him his clothes
1: <laughs> like just, it was just a, how go on he, he's no he's he's basically playing the same character he played in uh, Clear and Present Danger uh, you know just the, the Weasley government uh, 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 paper pusher you know
0: yeah, but at least his intentions of this movie are actually good, like, rather than really self-serving. And <laughs> like, true. I mean, like I rewatched Clear, and Pre- I rewatched both Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger a few weeks back, and, and I forgot how good he was in Clear and Present Danger.
1: He really is. Yeah, him, him, and uh, um, Harris Eulin, both of them are just so they're like the, the this great tag team of bad guys in that movie.
0: Oh, for sure, and, and like oh. Well, I think we discovered what the next franchise we're going to cover next. I think it's, it's oh, going to be the Jack Ryan movies.
1: Oh, man. Sign me up.
0: <laughs> All right. But any last thoughts on the first uh, Mission Impossible?
1: It is a very solid start uh, to to the series, and that's something that I appreciate much more now. Like I said, with 22 years of hindsight as opposed to what I felt at the time where I – uh, my my issues with with the story choices sort of uh, made me not as amenable to the stuff that it does well.
0: Very nice, and I think it's like you said it is a great entry point to the series. If you're interested, like if you want to see Fallout, let me I say definitely start here. I mean because it is relatively small. Like it is a big movie, but compared to like how the sequels play out, it is a smaller movie. and is more intimate and is full with tension. And like, sir. The plot may be a little confusing at times, but it's kind of secondary to the set pieces that play out. And it's a movie that flies by. like It's an hour and 50 minutes, but it zips by at, at a great pace. It never feels like it's dragging at any point.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: All right, then. And so moving on to Mission Impossible 2... What was your first experience with the second movie in the series?
1: So this one I was super excited about before it came out. And again, part of that is because, uh, my buddy Paul was so excited for it and, you know, it made me really jazzed. And I remember seeing the, you know, the, the, the trailer with the, with the Limp Bizkit version of the song of the, the theme. And, um, and then, and when I heard John Woo was directing, I was really excited because I loved Face Off. Uh, and but I'll be honest, I I found the movie just a crushing bore when I finally watched it. And I I, uh, I remember at the time I revisited just yesterday, and it, unlike with the first one, my opinion for this one hasn't really gone up particularly. Uh, I think it, it's easier to sort of be like, all right, well, it's just another Ethan Hunt adventure, and that's fine, I guess. But, but I remember at the time being like, oh my god, like, is this is this what these movies are going to be? You know, I just felt like, I'll tell you what my beef with it was. I I was like, to me, the team aspect of Mission Impossible is one of the most important things, and I felt like this MI two more than any of the other movies is like, it's just Ethan Hunt super spy. And he's just better at everything, and it's all about him, and he has to do it, he has to do it. And it, was, and it was just so focused on Ethan that, to me, it didn't even need to be Mission Impossible. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it definitely seems like, oh, is Ethan Hunt with some people? I know it's. it sounds like I just said, like, oh, it's all about the best people around and around the movie. But I think just story-wise, this one is like, all right, it's Ethan Hunt, the Ethan Hunt show, and everybody else just lives within this
1: world. yeah. And and I think the the problem I I had you know I guess I guess you could say with with both of the f- the first two but the first movie is I mean it's our introduction to him so it, you, it's more forgivable uh, with the second one I just I just felt like we don't get any real insight into his character it just he he feels I- invincible um and and I I was I don't know like halfway through John Woo totally lost me with all the stuff he was doing and by the by the eighth like mask pull switch reveal i was like all right i'm can we just be done (laughs) you know know, i i thought the 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 motorcycle uh scene at the end i thought held up for me but other than that honestly this i was i watched this yesterday and i was ready for it to be done i was like all right let's just let's move on to the third one because i definitely love the third one
0: (laughs) that's totally fair and and i think everybody can agree this is the weakest movie in the franchise but also, like, it has helped define what the franchise actually is because it is a response to the criticism of the first movie, people believing the first movie was too complicated. Even Roger Ebert found the plot of the first one kind of um, hard to, like, follow at times and praised the plot of this one. So, and the, and you think about, it, like, Robert Towne brought this. Like, you wrote Chinatown, for God's right. sakes. <laughs> and then you're just like... And it definitely seems yes, this is John. This is a, a John Woo movie first and foremost. And my first memory of it is like I saw this one in theaters with my mom, and I think this this was not my first John Woo induction. I had actually seen Face Off uh, before, and like I saw I saw a lot of movies. But I was way too young, and obviously did not leave a bad impression on me whatsoever. Um, and yeah, and was seeing this the first time in theater, and like we may have been like one of ten, the two of us might have been two out of the ten people in the theater. And I was like, huh. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, and like, and this was a, a success. Like, maybe it was just like we went early one day. I think it might have been a Sunday, and it might have been early morning showing. But, um, yes, yeah, so I, I, as a kid watching it, yeah, because I, I was like ten years old when I saw this. I'm like, yeah, the big explosions, and everything, and I thought, like, whoa! I was as a child, like, yeah, I was enamored with that. As an adult or grown up child, whatever you want to use, I've still, <laughs> yes, yeah, so the story is. Silly, Fandy Newton is used like an object, and I feel really bad for her.
1: Yeah. Oh, I told, and and that really stuck out to me rewatching it. I was like, oh my gosh, it it felt incredibly more pronounced now. You know.
0: Yeah, and I'm just like I, I don't know if that's Town's writing or just John Mu's treatment of uh, women, or I don't I do not know where that came from in terms of story for this movie.
1: It. Yeah it's 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 a it's a weird one man like like i said it's it's given that we just have so many mission impossible movies it's easy to just look at the second one and be like all right well it's i mean it's just another one you know it's like there's there's you know whatever like 25 bond movies 24 bond movies not all of them are great you know and but you're just like well for every I don't know, but I feel like if I say a, what I think is a bad one, somebody else will be upset that, no, that's a great one, you know, but whatever, for for whatever one that you're not so crazy about, there's going to be one that you do like and you just go through it. So it's, it's, it's easy for it to sort of even out. Uh, but I very distinctly remember at the time the movie ends and I'm like, you know, I think I might be done with these movies, you know, because I was like, I was meh. On the first one at the time, and then the second one did nothing for me. So that was it was a defining moment for me, where I was like, "Am I am, am I done with Mission Impossible?" I'm glad I wasn't done with Mission Impossible. <laughs>
0: were you like like you said you're a fan of John Woo from Faceoff? Had you seen his previous like Hong Kong work
1: going into this? I I had not at the time. Um, I saw I saw um, Hardboiled Hardboiled, right? Yes. Uh, shortly thereafter, because I was I was I was going to film school at the time, so uh, in one of my classes we watched that. But but I I knew I knew of his Hong Kong reputation. I knew he was like oh John Mu you know, um, and and I obviously I had I had seen uh, Broken Arrow, and I, and I actually really liked his his Van Damme movie, well, uh, Hard Target. Hard Target, yeah, that's like one of the few Van Damme movies that I think still really holds up. Actually,
0: yeah, I think that holds up. I think. I think even as silly as I think Bloodsport holds up, maybe even First Universal Soldier, as silly as that is with Dolph Lundgren, I think still kind of holds up. I just can't believe that's a... I think that's a Roland Emmerich movie. I think that was like his first big movie. Okay. Yeah, and,
1: and Dean Devlin, both of them.
0: Explains everything going forward, now thinking about it. No no disrespect <laughs> yeah. to them, but like they 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 have a formula, they stick to it. But um, it's curious that you bring up Hard Target because I think... The motorcycle chase, the end of Mission Possible 2, like, the whole story is that a former IMF agent has used, is trying to get hold of a virus and release it on the world, but Ian Hunt and his team are trying to stop them. It's a loose remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious because using the former girlfriend yes. of the IMF agent uh, played by... Doug Scott the character by
1: almost Wolverine.
0: Almost Wolverine. I think this, because I think this went over schedule and I think it's why he had to drop out of X-Men.
1: So Yeah, and, and he he uh, broke his leg or something while they were making it so it pushed his like it, it, it I mean I remember real time all of those casting announcements. like oh Doug Scott is going to be Wolverine. I'm like, "Oh, okay, cuz I knew him as like the prince from the uh, that Drew Barrymore Cinderella movie." Uh, what was that called? Ever After. That's what it's called. Oh my God! I had totally forgotten about that. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. So I knew him as that guy, and I was like, "Really? All right, cool." And then, and then, you know, oh, uh, do, like within uh, a month or so, you know, it's like, "Oh, uh, Dewey Gray Scott's not going to be able to do it," and this Hugh Jackman guy. I'm like, "Who the hell is that guy? He he won't amount to anything," I tell you. Not a hell of <laughs> and then, and it's just funny because I, you know, you wonder like, does Dewey Gray Scott? I mean, he's like the Pete Best of, of franchises. Like, he was this close to to just immort- immortality, and now he's just like the guy who's in stuff that you kind of know from something, you know? He was on Doctor Who, like, like two years ago,
0: and I was like, hey! I'm like, it's, hey. it's almost Wolverine. Yeah, like, oh, I, I feel like, I'm like, is that going to be his gravestone? Almost Wolverine?
1: <laughs> almost Wolverine. Well, I think he's married to Claire Forlani. and uh, I think I uh, makes up for it. That I was what to say. It's like, well, uh, you know, as consolation prizes go, I, I think it's fine.
0: <laughs> uh, I was wondering, if, like, he just every time the, like X Men movie came out, he just got a little bit, a little bit more bitter as they went along. Just yeah, just, like...
1: exactly. <laughs> you know, it, but I'll tell you, he he is a good actor, and and not not that we're diving down the X Men rabbit hole, but I he I think he he would have been a good Wolverine. I see no reason to think he wouldn't have been just as memorable as Hugh Jackman. Uh, in that alternate reality. I mean, who's to say? You know, because I mean, he, he is talented. And, and I think in uh, and, and mi too? he's good. I think he's a good villain. He's a good physical match for Ethan. And I think it's a good switch from, from the previous film. Yes.
0: And I think, and nothing to take away from Dewey Scott, I just feel like if we had the slider technology, we can go to that alternate universe where he's Wolverine and Stallone is is uh, the Terminator from Last Action Hero. <laughs> <Right>. And everything, <laughs> it's like, um... Or we just go to alternate timelines where Halloween three was success, and there was a completely different franchise afterwards. Things like that. And yes, he is a formidable villain because he's a former IMF, IMF, IMF agent, and how he knows Hunt's kind of moves and his kind of ways of like dealing with missions. And I do love that sequence of like them preparing to break into Biosite to try and to both save and destroy the virus on either side of their teams. And I love how he's kind of breaking down what Hunt would probably do in this situation, how we're going to turn the tables on him, and as a physical match at the end, I think is really good.
1: Yes, I agree. I mean, you know, uh, what they were trying to do uh, was a little bit of of uh, the GoldenEye thing, you know, ha- ha- setting up the hero and the villain as mirror images of each other, and and I, I think that works. I mean, I think I think Sean Bean is so good as you know. 006. he's 006, right? In, yes. In, in Goldeneye, uh, so that's that's not a bad template to work off of, you know. And I I think I think that aspect of the of the movie I don't have a problem with. I think I think uh, the rivalry between them works really well.
0: Right, and it's so funny. Like when I small tangent here, when I saw Skyfall and like the opening, it's like oh, all the names of our ages in the field. I'm like, and like we have to get that list back. And I'm like. I've seen this somewhere before, haven't I? And <laughs> yeah, like you're right. just ripping off Mission Impossible now, aren't you? And it's kind of like <sighs> Casino Royale is Daniel Craig's best one, I think. Skyfall is mildly overrated. I, there are still enjoyable moments in there, and I, that's my two cents on that. But no, going, I agree with you. yeah, and I just feel like the I think the going back to Goldeneye, I still think one of the best fights in the entire Pond franchise is when it's hand. To, it's when they're fighting hand-to-hand hand on the, like, that little room on the satellite, and it yes. ends, and ends up, like, with uh, Bond using the ladder to descend away from uh, Sean at that point. Like, yeah. that scene, I think, that is, there's a certain brutality to that moment. I'm like, ah, it hurts to watch sometimes. But here, this is in Mission Impossible 2, there's so many, there's so many, like, I guess you would say, John Woo moments. Like, yes, we have Ethan Hunt diving through the air with Tool... With dual Berettas firing in slow motion, we have doves. We have him doing really intricate Aikido at points. And I had to ask you, like, your feelings on the set pieces. Now, do they still hold up, or or they do they find a little you find them to be superfluous these days?
1: Uh, I would say more, more the latter. I mean, it, to me, it 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 really sticks out when compared to the rest of the series because because they've made such an effort. You know, certainly. Uh, J J and and Brad Bird and 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 Macquarie, you know, they've tried to have for for not a great comparison, but they've tried to do Martin Campbell esque uh, approaches to to the action, you know, where it is more grounded, it is it does feel more real. You feel the the bumps, so to speak, you know. And I think uh, Wu's like ball- balletic approach to this, like it's it's very John Wu, but it's very not Mission Impossible. Given the rest of the series, so so it sticks out. I mean, again, again, I want to contextualize it by saying it's easy to just be like, all right, well, this is just this one. What do you do? Uh, but it is it the the wooisms they stick out a little too much. You know, like oh, we gotta have the doves, and you know, it's like all right, it's fine, I guess. That, that's my that's my review of Mi two. It's fine, I guess. <laughs> so it's far from the man. I did not like this movie at all when I first saw it
0: that's fair i mean i think like the one moment even as a kid like i i did like tilt my head as a, like a confused puppy like wait it's near the end of the third act when ethan is infiltrating the like the bioset like like island site and he comes across that guard and he runs at him in slow motion he does the flip and he does a yeah. dual kick and i'm like even then i was like wait <laughs> that's, that's a
1: right. bit much sir and I'm like, just how like, did the physics work there yeah.
0: I'm like alright one kick maybe but I don't think you have enough inertia to do both kick the gun out of hand and then knock him out with your other foot something was a little amiss there and uh, even in the moment where he throws the pipe bomb at the door and blows it up when two guards go to answer it and at the one point where the dove flies through the flames and it's illuminated, I, I I just remembered of the nostalgia critic when he made fun of this. He's like, I was like, I want doves on fire firing machine guns while flying through the air. Like, <laughs> like that's what. Like that's the only way you can make this even more over the top than it already is. And yeah, it is. It's. It is silly and yes, but they're, they're like, I guess it's just that, that little boy in me. They're like, I think the bike chase at the end, I think is still one of my favorites. And I remember as a kid, like being wowed at the moment where Cruz is on the bridge and Luther blows up the car and it goes ass over tea kettle over the railing. And he goes driving through the flames and then eventually doing the endo and destroying that one car. I still like those moments. It is. It is so, like, adolescent of me. I get that. (laughs) But I'm just like, like, if you know it's bad, you know it's, like, crap, and admit that it is, I think you're fine to have your guilty pleasure. And this is my guilty pleasure of the franchise.
1: Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I I think uh, if if this is the basement, so to speak, I mean, well, then we're in pretty good shape because because I it's not a movie I feel compelled to rewatch uh, repeatedly. But having just rewatched it, it's like, eh, it's fine.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not like comparing it to another – comparing it back to Bond again. It's not Dying of the Day.
1: This is true.
0: <laughs> we don't it's have true. a giant CGI wave and uh, ripoffs of Diamonds of Forever plot lines used again. Oh,
1: I remember being in the theater and and seeing the horrible CGI uh Bond like parasailing or whatever and just sort of like putting my 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 face into my hands you know because because like that was the one thing Bond movies had going for them was like they do it for real they do it practically and then here's like pixel pixel pierce you know <laughs> <laughs> and I was like oh god what are you guys doing and it was it was downhill from there I remember
0: when I saw that, and it's the fight between um, Halle Berry and uh, uh, Rosamund Pike, the sword fight yes. on a plane. Yes. And, and Rosamund Pike says, oh, I can read your every move. And I'm like – and Halle Berry says, read this, and stabs her in the chest. And I'm like – as a like, 13-year-old, I'm like, I bet you she punctuated it with a bitch, and she says that. And I'm like, well <laughs> – I was like – like, you know that's why I skipped. I didn't see Casino Royale in theaters. I was like, no. I'm not.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I,
0: I, because it, it left that much of a bad taste in my mouth. I was like, no. It's same thing when I saw um, X-Men Origins Wolverine. I didn't see First Class in theaters. So I was like, no. How funny. I was like, nope. I'm not going to fool me once, shame on it. He, like, fool me twice. So I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to fall for it. I, I regret both not seeing both Casino Royale and First Class in theater. Um, one last thing I'll ask is, like, your feelings on Hans Zimmer's score in this movie.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let me ask you something. Um, you said you were like ten when when this one when when Mi two came out. Yeah. So by then you had seen you were you were like six when you saw the first one. Yes. So did you did you revisit? Like, I'm I'm curious wh- where you know what I mean? Because because when you're a kid, four years is a forever. I mean that's a long time. mm Hmm. So what was what did it feel like you had been waiting a long time for a sequel? You know because 4 years is a long time for for a part 2 to come out.
0: I I'm not sure if I was waiting for a sequel. I welcomed it when it came, but okay. like I had a bunch of other stuff that occupied my brain at the time because we had Star Wars Phantom Menace. I had that to look forward to once the, oh, that yeah. news was released. I still I also met that I never got a chance to see the re-releases of the original trilogy back in theaters. I, I never got a chance to do that. Mm. But at the same time, like I would also, I got into that into animated TV. Like that's why I really fell in love with the Batman animated series as well as the Superman's TV series. And then catching up on Spider-Man and the X-Men series. And that was eventually going to lead into things like Batman beyond X-Men evolution and such. And so yeah. I, I was not like, I was not like, like counting down the days for it. But once I saw a trailer for it, I was like, Oh, I like tom Cruise I like, sure, I, I've sure. seen Days of Thunder in the first Mission possible i'll I'll enjoy this, this looks very exciting,
1: gotcha, so it's more like, oh hey, they did a to that thing I saw like, a while ago
0: yeah it's not and it's not like I didn't watch Mission Possible One like that was something I did rent a lot I mean I even rented the video game based off the first movie that had like nothing to do with the movie itself because I think it was developed separately that's, that's funny, and I'm just like ah oh, this is this is uh <laughs> this is a bit boring. And I, I think I had to play the Tomorrow Never Dies video game more than, that, than I played the Mission Impossible video game. I was a Sony guy. I did not have an N64. That's why I always envied people who had N64 and Goldeneye. And so, and I still don't have that. <laughs> I think I should, like, just go to, like, I should go to eBay and just buy myself an N64 and Goldeneye and I'll just be content with that. But, and like you said, the Mission Impossible 2, yes, it is a mixed bag. Um... It definitely seems like because with the first two movies, Cruz hired established directors. Yes, with De Palma and Wu. But after this, he would go with like relatively unknowns or untested feature-length directors going forward. I ask you, do you think that was a response to the critics
1: of this movie? You know, I don't. I don't know because because MI two was a huge hit. Like it's, I feel like. For a movie that no one I talk to is like, man, I love Mission Impossible too. There, I don't, I don't know if that creature exists, but despite the fact that that's the case, it made gazillions of dollars. I mean, it did really well that summer, right? Because this, this was two thousand. So, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, let's see, two thousand. What else came out that year? Like X-Men. You had X Men, X Men, right? And X Men was like a surprise hit, but but MI two was just a massive hit and and so you know i don't i don't know i, I don't i don't know uh what uh what g- uh, guided Cruz's thought process i do feel like i mean he he kind of discovered joe carnahan right because of because of uh, nark right which he produced and um and i remember when i first heard carnahan was doing the third mission impossible i was like wow that's really interesting because because i loved nark have you seen nark that's with Ray Liotta, right? With Liotta and Jason uh, Jason Patrick.
0: I think I've seen it once. I need to revisit it.
1: Yeah, I mean, just stylistically, it's like it's easy to see why why Tom Cruise was so enamored of, of Joe Carnahan, and and so I certainly didn't think of it as like oh he's he's trying to look for unknowns. I was like he was blown away by what he did on Narc. I get it. Uh, I was disappointed when the Carnahan version didn't happen when it kind of fell apart, you know, and so when i first heard that jj J. abrams was doing the third one i was a little bit i was like the felicity guy really cuz i had <laughs> cause i hadn't seen lost i hadn't i it was it was on at the time but i hadn't seen it and then i saw the pilot of lost when it came out on dvd and i was like oh okay that's that's why i mean this it's i mean the pilot of lost is like one of the best directed pilots i've ever seen you know and so it's easy to see. Like it's easy now to take for granted. Like oh, J.J. Abrams, he's going to be a great director. But like, I got to give credit to Tom Cruise, man. He he. And it wasn't even because of Lost. It was because of Alias that he that he hired him. Yeah, because like it, because
0: Mission Impossible Three is kind of a
1: big episode. He's like a big budget version of Alias. It totally is. Yeah. And so yeah, and and it totally works. I, honestly, uh, Tim. MI3 is where I was fully bought into the franchise where I was like, all right, I get it. I get what they're doing. I love that. And from then to now I've been, I've been signed, sealed and delivered every time.
0: Nice. And yeah. so, and so before we jump into three really quick, there was one thing I wanted to say, like, yeah, it was curious to see, like, I didn't think they were going to make another sequel after that because I had heard the critics of mission possible. So I'm like, all right, I made money. Yeah. And then, Cruise would go off to do things like Vanilla Sky and then My- Minority Report and War of the Worlds. So I'm like, oh, maybe he won't come back to Mission Possible, but he did. And six years later, we got Mission Possible 3. directed by jj abrams and this is kind of a soft reboot of the franchise because yeah uh, we find out that um a form, a trainee of um, of ethan hunt has been murdered and is and ethan hunts on the case to figure out what happened but it seems like it may have come from inside imf itself and he is also a suspect because it's one thing consistent with this franchise disavowed ethan Hunt is disavowed like
1: almost everyone with the exception <laughs> of two Right, and and there's just a lot of corrupt people in IMF.
0: Is that a statement on just government agencies in this movie? Is this it, <laughs> really subversive? And we just do not, do not know it yet. <laughs> I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> but you guys said like this is this, the movie that got you back into the franchise. So what were your first experiences going leading up to Mi3, Mi3, and then seeing it for the first time?
1: So uh, you know, I, I mentioned you know I was following the development somewhat when when Carnahan was involved. I think they they uh, um, what's her name, Carrie Ann Moss was was attached uh, Scarlett Johansson, and and then it just kind of fell apart because because Carnahan left uh, you know over uh, quote unquote creative differences. And I remember at the time being like, all right, well, oh well, I, I didn't really care because like I said, after the second one, I was I I could have taken her leaving uh, the movies and then and then. J.J. Um, Abrams, at the time, I did not watch Alias, so I was not super familiar with his work. Uh, but there was nothing about his signing that really moved the needle for me. But I'll tell you what—what what did it was um, in 2006, I went to WonderCon, which used to be here in, in the Bay Area. Now it's in SoCal, unfortunately. But uh, the, there was the big panel, the equivalent of like Hall H you know for, uh, here in the Moscone Center and and I was there for this is funny in hindsight but uh, Brian Singer was going to be there and bringing footage from Superman Returns so I was I I went to see that and right before the singer panel was JJ J. Abrams talking about Mission Impossible so I was like all right well I guess let's just me and my wife for that I was like all right let's just watch this and just get a good seat for the Brian Singer thing and and again it's funny in hindsight cuz Superman Returns turned out to be not not uh, not that good, you know, but <laughs> I'm so
0: conflicted about the movie because, yes, it's a love letter to Donner movie Donner's Superman, but it doesn't tell its own story. It's it doesn't it's problematic it's, as well.
1: To to me, to me, Superman Returns is, is it's Brian Singer's uh, it's Vertigo, you know, he's like dressing it up to look like uh, uh, the other movie, you know. Which, uh, with the creepy things that goes on in Superman Returns? Yeah, I think that's, that is appropriate to Vertigo
0: because Jimmy Stewart is very creepy in Vertigo after that's rewatching right. it recently. Like he is not a good guy in that movie.
1: And hey, even Kim Novak.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't uh, even put that together. Huh. Uh, or even, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of even Ray Saint. Sorry. Kim yes. Novak is not. But, um, crap. We're trying to think. Kim Novak is North by Northwest? Yes. Okay. Either, no. No. Wait. Either, wait. Hold on.
0: No. Even Mary no, Saint Kim, is north by northwest. I think Kim
1: Novak Kim, is Ver, Vertigo. It's Vertigo. Okay. I'm getting my Hitchcocks messed up. I mean, it's wow. all.
0: It's the various blonde women that's been in his movies. It's kind of. It's kind of hard to <laughs> sometimes. It's like, all right, but it not your. Yeah. I mean, like nothing to take against those women whatsoever. It's just like all right, because he had a very particular um, style for his women in his movies. So yeah. Okay. He was saying, "So you're waiting for the mission. Po- you're waiting for the Superman returns. Waiting
1: for Superman returns. So here's J.J. J. Abrams, and and I'll tell you, man, if this guy dares you not to not to like him, he is so charming and so gregarious. He's you know the way he is in his interviews now. That's exactly what he was 12 years ago as like TV guy who's making his movie debut. You know what I mean?" He was so charming. He's like, yeah, we got this thing here, and it's great, and Tom's great. And then he showed the bridge sequence, uh, almost the entirety of the bridge sequence. And I was knocked on my ass. I was like, that looks friggin' dope. That looks amazing. And so suddenly I, suddenly, this movie's on my radar that I could not have cared about at all. And and I was so gratified, you know, like three months later whenever the, the movie came out. I mean, it – it's just a damn good spy movie, you know, and it, and it finally started to resemble the mission impossible that I had grown up with, which is also nice. But beyond that, I mean, to me, honestly, it worked because we, it finally, it wasn't invincible. Ethan hunt, the whole movie is about showing how Ethan is not invincible. And that is so much more interesting.
0: Totally. And it is, I'm like, I wonder how Brian Singer must have felt like, all right, now I have to go out there and try and win this crowd over. Like I understood people were waiting for me, but damn, that bridge sequence was awesome. Um, and so my feeling, well, my, uh, story of going into mission Impossible three is that, yeah, I had seen the trailers for mission possible three in 2005, I guess, look leading up to this, because this movie came out in 2006 and I was like, Oh, well that looks interesting. And I remember one night, my dad, um, he had dropped me off to the movie theater and because I was just about ready to – I think I had my learner's permit, and I didn't have my license yet. So, And he ended up actually meeting up with a few friends at a sports bar near the movie theater itself, so it worked out for both of us. So I sit down and watch this movie, and then the opening happens. And it's the yeah. an interrogation of Ethan Hunt. And you he referred to pin drop in that theater.
1: Huh.
0: And I'm like – and then it's like – Oh my God. Like, I don't know who this woman is because obviously very important to Ethan Hunt. And then have that Philip Seymour Hoffman being his most dastardly in his entire career. Yeah. And then the opening titles happen. And like,
1: <sighs> like, Oh, right. <laughs> all
0: yeah. right. I guess we're in for a, a different ride here. And so it is a thrill ride from the game to end. So your overall feelings on mission possible three.
1: Oh man, I love this movie. I almost feel like it's underrated. You know, I, I it it almost like because because a lot of the hype tends to be around four and five. I mean, understandably because I think those are both really good. But I feel like almost to to some extent, uh, this is just as effective in introduction uh, to the franchise as as the first movie. You know, I think I think if somebody just started watching with movie three, uh, they'd get it. It you know, I think it does such a good job of just. G- g- bring you into the world and and it's a much b- better on-ramp a much clearer on-ramp I should say to to again to to the next two. You know there's, this is like the Abram's wing of the franchise now that he's like a co-producer with with Cruz. Um I I I really like how how grounded it is. I mean like you said that 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 opening you know the 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 teaser before before the credits uh, is is great because it's beaten and bloodied uh, uh, Ethan and we've never seen that in this series you know so uh, to me I'm always like you know you push your hero up against their limitations you, and you make the audience genuinely question whether they're going to make it and that's something effective and, and contrast that with how Ethan is introduced in movie two where he's like free climbing the mountain and he like jumps from one ledge to the other and you're like you know there's a little party it's like alright well come on you know <laughs> You know, because because I get that people can do that. But I also to me, I'm like, well, that's so that's such like a rare breed of person that to me, that's almost uh, less relatable. You know, whereas here you've got it doesn't matter that he can jump from one ledge to the other. He's tied up. The woman he loves is in mortal danger. He doesn't know what to do. And the way the way he's playing it, uh, it's, it's vulnerable. You know, he's playing it with real raw emotion and that makes all the difference.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, with the opening of Mission Impossible 2, where he's climbing the mountain, he is very much like... Arnold Schwarzenegger or Stallone in, like, the 80s because, like, they're meta-mountain and it cannot be stopped by anything. That's right. And, but in Mission Impossible 3, he's playing, like, John McClane in Die Hard where, yes, yes. He, he's emotional, he can be hurt and can be pushed to a breaking point. And I think that's why I think this movie is so... The opening is so effective. I know people have criticisms of, like, starting a movie like with, like, a cold opening. It is a very TV thing to do. Like, we have a cold opening and it is... Near the end of the movie or middle of the movie, just to set it up. It's not the beginning of the story. I know. I think Dan Harmon had that voice that opinion on uh, Rick and Morty, like the movie, the story should start at the beginning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think huh. this sets up a good. It's like a tease. Like, all right, what's going to happen next? And you're like, is that how the story actually opens, or is that how it ends, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you're right that it is. It is very similar to the fact that, like, yeah, it is. It kind of starts the idea of J.J. Abrams is like the king of reboots. I know it's not the first person to say that, but it starts here because this is kind of a soft reboot to the Mission
1: Impossible franchise. It is. Yeah. And I remember, Tim, by the way, speaking of, of uh, reboots and things like that, he he gave an interview shortly uh, after this movie. No, this was probably uh, shortly after Star Trek, uh, where he talked about how he actually wanted to bring Peter Graves into the Mission Impossible movies, he said he wanted to uh, uh, redeem that character, Jim Phelps. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, because he he's he's he, he's like I want to do for Peter Graves what what we did for Leonard on on Star Trek. Uh, and then, unfortunately, you know, Peter Graves died. A, probably within a year of of him giving that interview. So it's a real shame, but that was something that, that Abrams really wanted to do it at this. I just, again, as, as a fan of, of the whole franchise, I was like, that's just, that's cool that he thought about that, you know?
0: Yeah. And that's a great attention to detail that some people wouldn't have. Like, like there's certain people like who sign onto big franchises who are not fans and do not understand the source material and just make decisions on the willy nilly. And, alienates people who are fans for a long for been there for years.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and I think what he did on, on Star Trek, uh, you, you see the seeds of it with what he did on mission impossible, where he looks at it like, okay, what, what are the aspects? How, how much of it can we keep, you know? And one thing that I like is, is G Michael Giacchino, who who did the score. Uh, he brings in, uh, a piece of music that, that, um, uh, oh shoot. What's the guy who made the, L- L- Lalo, Lalo Schifrin, Schifrin who, yeah, yeah, who, who who did the the TV series? He there was a piece of music uh, in in every episode of the show. It's called the the plot, and it's 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 the music that plays when we see the I M uh, team members sort of, you know, putting together their their elaborate plan, and and they specifically both Abrams and Giacchino made the decision to bring that piece of music back in, just as like this is a piece of Mission Impossible history, you know. Hey, sorry, my my daughter just found me in the closet. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm just a, I'm just a huge fan of the movie. I'm, and and by the way, we we finally get uh, one of the essential, what I would call one of the essential uh, parts of the series in here, and that's that's uh, Benji, played by by um, Simon Pegg.
0: Yes, and as a person who is cosplayed as characters of Simon Pegg, it's a, it warms my heart to see Simon Pegg show up in this franchise because I'm a huge fan of him, especially with the Edgar Wright stuff, whether it be the Cornetto and Blood trilogy, whether it be Space, and, and, and him being part of this franchise and then later Star Trek. It just warms my heart to see him become the typical kind of nerdy technician and grow into this great IMF agent that we see later right. down in the franchise uh do you have a favorite uh, set
1: piece of this movie oh man um I I mean it's honestly it's the bridge sequence I think I think that's one of the best action scenes in the whole in the whole series so it's so effective it's so it's just like the the stakes just keep escalating and I love I love that that Ethan, we, we have a sense that Ethan is just trying to stay one step ahead of it. He has no idea what he's going to do. And I really like the, the desperation, the despair, you know. Um, I, I think I think uh, it's, it's something that the, that the biggest set piece is right there in the middle, and it's the heroes losing. You know, it's, that's the equivalent of – that's like the Hoth battle, you know, uh, of this movie. And and I love that the, the the climax is much smaller scale. The climax is just Tom Cruise running for like 30 miles, I think, or you know, whatever it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love watching the behind-the-scenes footage. of seeing like the giant cable cam they had right acro- above the river just to keep up with Cruise as he ran down uh, parallel to this river. And it is is fantastic. And, of course, that's the, the joke that Tom Cruise
1: runs in every movie he is. And- he's he's going to have a heart attack one day. He's going to keel over running the way he does.
0: It's the joke, but I think Des Leary made a stand up about Jim Fix. Like, yeah, Jim Fix, guy who made uh, uh, jogging um, popular. He did gym, He did uh, jogging books he did jogging like uh, infomercials and how did he die while he was jogging <laughs> it's like i bet you it was two pack a day smokers i found him like holy crap that's jim fix yeah let's get another marlboro here um, i'm like yeah it's probably that's how he's going to go out I, I i would not be surprised like like variety like tom cruise dies on set while running like huh While running. <laughs> well I don't like, I guess he ran out of time. Like that would be like the really, really coarse, uh, pun for the headline of it. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I can totally see that now. But, and I agree with you. I think it is my personal favorite. It's either the opening, that opening interrogation with Philip Seymour Hoffman or it's the bridge sequence. And even though it's the the one shot that's like at every sizzle reel for when it comes to mission impossible, it's either running towards the car, the missile, from the drone hits the car behind him, he blows up and he gets thrown yes. to the car and he his back is broken let's not let's not yeah. kid ourselves that he, he's...
1: he is in a wheelchair after that yeah. exactly but <laughs> he gets back up but it's a cool moment there but it tells you something tim right you're like that one shot and i immediately knew exactly what you're talking about you know because 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 that was the shot you know i saw it in the thing and i was like dude and and that was uh, Abrams talked about that he's like Tom wanted to do it he wanted to do it for real and that was that I think that was the first time I really became aware of how Tom Cruise apparently has a death wish with because with each subsequent movie it, he's like daring the gods to to, to take him with the, with the crazy stunts he's doing you know yeah and, and
0: it reminds me, I just imagine like okay in Minority Report like was it an actual conveyor belt building a car around Tom Cruise and he was literally <laughs> trying not to die by like. With nuts and bolts being like rammed into him or something. (laughs) And yeah, it it is, it is a great, like it is, if you want to like how you define a good action set piece It is a good hook. It's that moment. That is a hook of like, of Tom Cruise trying to get away and bam, the bad guys do something and it results of him being hurt like that. Yeah. It is absolutely fantastic. And I want to ask you your feelings on Philip Seymour Hoffman's
1: role in this. Oh my God, he is phenomenal. I mean, it it's what's what's great about him is is he you know he he leaves himself such a range in his performance where uh, you know he's he's able to 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 exude so much menace by just being like, do you do, do you know somebody? Did do. do you care about her I'm, I'm gonna hurt her you know like he's like whispering and it's freaking terrifying right and then when he's finally when he's like screaming we've we've gone on that journey right but it's like he's not like living up there in the ceiling he's got this whole range and he's i don't know it's it's one of those things where obviously because of the fact that that he's gone you know we think about all the performances um that that you know, we'll never get from him. But I mean, it, it's a, it, it, it reminds me of, of, uh, in a weird way, of Heath Ledger's Joker. Not because they're playing it the same way, but because, uh, b- b- and uh, Dark Knight is like fresh in my mind, obviously, because we're like a week after the 10th anniversary. But like, that's what Heath Ledger does too, right? He finds all these ranges to play, and he finds menace in like the lower levels. You know what I mean? Yeah. He finds menace by just being calm you know and that's I think that's what that's what Philip Seymour Hoffman does so well by by being calm he's so much more creepy
0: because it's so easy for him to be like out of 10 the entire time and it just be yeah. over the top but like no like it's it is peaks and valleys and there's beats to how he wants to be threatening and how he wants to exude his power over the other characters in the scene and I even love the most, like like up you said like, when he says dear wife or girlfriend, like, well, I'm going to find him and I'm going to hurt her, and I, that's my bad, like, it almost sounds like Nicolas Cage there, I didn't mean it to sound <laughs> like that. Like, uh, uh, shoot him again, his soul is still dancing. <laughs> um, uh, it, like, I even love the moments where it's Philip Seymour Hoffman pretending to be Tom Cruise being Philip Seymour Hoffman, and, yeah. like, it's like, what's up, what's up, and just, like, have him, like, like trying to play Tom Cruise, those moments they, it shows another way of showing a range as, a, as an actor, like after that, like I, I want him to be penguin in a Batman movie. That that's oh. who I wanted to see him as.
1: I think we all wanted that. Yeah.
0: Then, like that or Hugo strange. One or the other.
1: Oh, sure. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Good call. Yeah.
0: Um, and it's just like, and of course you remember, it's just, uh, well, let's take a moment here to remember Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it's like, this is an outstanding performance. Him as Capote is obviously fantastic. That's when he won the Oscar for, but like I've been actually rereading uh, uh, the screenplay for Boogie Nights, and I love him as Scotty in that movie, and how yeah. he puts himself out there, like trying to be affectionate towards Mark Wahlberg in that movie, and how he, he's rejected. But like, it, but like, and his reaction, like, it is so real and so raw. Like being rejected not too long ago, a few months ago, like I had that moment. It's just like that when he's in the car crying. Like, like, oh, I I feel you there, guy. It's yeah and I miss the man that's what. I, that's the bottom line
1: it's it's such a shame you know it it's uh every time I see him in something because he you know it's it's like you knew the quality of performance you were going to get from him and it, you know i uh, he was in a movie that I really liked him in called um oh shoot what is it's uh, directed by George Clooney the Ides of March Have you seen the Ides of March yes I mean, he's so good in that, you know, and it's and it's like a secondary role, but it's it's just it's just he carries such credibility. Right. And and the scenes with him and uh, you got you got him and Clooney and and Ryan Gosling in a room and they're just sitting on chairs in an empty room just talking. And you're like, I would watch 90 minutes of this. Is that compelling, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, like, that's like that is the mark of a great actor. We're like, no, we don't have to do it. So you can just sit there and just be ourselves that's why i love 12 angry men so much because you have 12 yeah. great a- great actors in a room and have them kind of be try to win by the, the end of that movie and another great secondary role for him is in almost famous i love him in that oh
1: yeah yeah i forgot about that yeah good call and just like him just like just being like
0: the kind of cynical press agent of the rock and roll industry for Rolling Stone and just being like, kid, you don't want to do this. You don't want to go on tour with Stillwater. It's just not going to be fun. And everything just, as he chain smokes the entire time, like <laughs> absolutely adore him in that. I mean, even the small role in another P.C. Anderson movie um, in Punch Drunk Love, I think he's fantastic. He's a very scummy character in that.
1: Yeah, he, he certainly had he had a wheelhouse that he, he excelled at. The first time I ever saw him was a movie called Happiness, Todd Salon's um where he plays uh this guy he's like a it's big it's like it was a bizarre movie I, i'm gonna be honest it didn't do much for me but i he stuck out to me because he was he was just fascinating he plays this this pervert who keeps calling up um Lara flynn boyle and he's like jerking off on the phone while he's talking to her oh wow and, and it was—it's so bizarre because that was that was my first exposure to him. I'm like, who is this guy? It's so weird, you know. And then afterwards, I saw Boogie Nights, and I kind of went back. I was like, oh, okay, he's acting. Actually, like, <laughs> I was like, oh, he—he—he he, he has range. He's just not creepy phone masturbating guy. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Now, by the way, you mentioned Twelve Angry Men. I don't know if you uh, have you ever seen the 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 remake that William Friedkin directed?
0: I I, I want to because William Friedkin's in like my top ten favorite filmmakers. But uh, Sidney Lumet is. In my top five, and I'm just like sure. really it's like oh, I'm I'm really trepidatious to see the I'd be remake. Very
1: curious what you think of that because because it's a great cast, uh, you know because because it's I mean it's like a who's who. You got you got Jack Lemmon is is in the Henry Fonda role, but you got um, you know Courtney B. Vance and Gandolfini and Hume Cronin. I mean it's just uh, Michael T. Williamson, William Peterson. I mean it's this amazing cast.
0: I've seen one clip of Michael T. Williamson of like, he's. Yeah, oh, I know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're I saw like, that and I'm like what? <laughs> like, what? Like, him just roaring, like, Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I understand. All <laughs> that acting's a choice, man, but
1: happening there
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was like okay all right i understand like all right this take is for you and you do what you want and you make whatever choice you want like and that just ended up in the final edit i'm like okay there
1: see it's uh, funny because because i show uh, 12 angry men because i teach an argumentation and debate class so i show 12 angry men and generally speaking i show the friedkin one because like people these days don't want to watch black and white and they get all they get all persnickety about it so uh, it's it, like I, I feel comfortable showing it because I feel like it is good in its own way. It's very different. I think I think Jack Lemmon plays uh, juror number eight or whatever the number. I think he plays him very differently than than Henry Fonda, but. It is still a good movie. I'd be very curious what you think of it if you ever get around to seeing it. Let me know.
0: I, I will as, as long as do we have James Gandolfini breathing in it. Like that's my that's my repertoire. Like if we hear James Gandolfini orally just breathing very loudly, I think I'll be in it for it.
1: I, I don't think it would be a Gandolfini performance if we didn't hear him. <laughs> yeah, there's there is that in there for sure.
0: It's like that, or playing with food. Those are like the two big things when it comes to like. I know it's the easiest jokes to make about the Sopranos are those two things.
1: Nandofienism. Yeah,
0: it, it's so funny. Like I remember watching the Sopranos with headphones on once. Like, like, oh, this is very uncomfortable. These therapy sessions <laughs> now. Like, I feel bad for Lorraine Bracco in this moment. Um, anyway, back to Mission Impossible Three. Any final yeah. thoughts on the the movie?
1: Man, it's it's a good flick. Like I said, I think I think it's an underrated. Uh, uh, part of the series. So I, I hope, uh, you know, in the lead up to Fallout, you know, we're seeing a lot of people online who are like, I'm going to rewatch all of them. I hope a lot of people are, or or I'm going to watch all of them. I hope they're seeking out this one and, and being very pleasantly surprised by it.
0: I, I'll i co-sign that. Yeah, I think it's a little soft reboot to the series and kind of set the template for what was going to happen afterwards. I really enjoy it. I, I think, as soon as we're done recording, I think I'm, that's the one I'm going to throw on that watched this afternoon is like, yep, that's, that's what I need to watch. I just really want to watch it. I mean, last thing, um, last actor I want to talk about, Billy Crudup as the, the secondary villain. Um, I think he's an underrated actor and I just love him in this. And I even, his entire performance is summed up in one sentence when it's revealed that he's a bad guy. And he just says, it's complicated. It's
1: complicated.
0: <laughs> and I'm like, ah, oh, that's, that's perfect right there. That's something I just like, just great acting in one line right
1: there. Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, I agree with you. He is underrated. You know, I I feel like he he's sort of uh, he's he's known as like a good secondary actor. But I mean, the first time I ever saw him was in a movie called Without Limits, which uh, which Tom Cruise produced. Actually, now that I think about it, oh, there's the connection uh, where he played uh, Steve uh, Prefontaine. Huh. And uh, Robert Town directed it. It has uh, – Kiefer Sutherland is – sorry, not Kiefer Sutherland. Donald Sutherland is is the, the coach. And it's really, really good. Monica Potter is the love interest. it, cause it came, that, There was like this – these two uh, pre-Fontaine movies that came out within a year of each other. One of them starred uh, Jared Leto. And uh, it, that's just called Prefontaine. But th- this one, without limits, I think – personally, I think it's the better movie.
0: You're just saying. Huh. Yeah. I mean it's curious to see Billy Crupp in a movie like where – he does not have a British accent, and he's not um a giant blue god that does not wear underwear i mean <laughs> That's right. and so it's it's nice to see him like without like a lot of prosthetics i mean as a as the movie itself is bad like public enemies i don't think it's that good, but right. I love him as J. Edgar Hoover in that movie, yes, and even it's, 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 like he like, he's, like, he's got like two scenes, but like he sticks out to me and he he's great and this. And, Honestly,
1: he's good for like the minute he's in Justice League.
0: Yeah, because, you know? he, because he brings yeah he always brings his A game no matter what.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um. But yeah. So that's my final thoughts on Mr. Possible three. So let's move on to Well oh, oh, Actually. Well,
1: Tim, real quick. Um. Uh, we should mention Michelle Monaghan as uh,
0: oh, we'd as, be remiss to do that
1: as Julia. Yeah, I had such a crush on her from this movie. She's like she's so adorable, you know. And you, it just breaks your heart when you see her. Uh, uh, being roughed up like that. I mean, um, there's just something about her. I just, I, uh, you know, if, from from this movie to now, it, it always bothers me that she's never really like broken out.
0: Yeah, I mean, because this is my introduction to her, and I think she's fantastic. And because she's not a typical like Hollywood like starlet, like she like seems more of like a a girl next door kind of vibe about her. Yes. And, like, yes, she is gorgeous, and she's absolutely beautiful, but she's not, like, she's not, like, I guess, like, trying to like a Kardashian or anything like that is very, like, primped up to kind of look, to appeal to be beautiful. I think she's very naturally attractive, and she's fantastic in this, and especially in that interrogation scene. And then I think she's great in Gone Baby Gone. I think she's wonderful in that movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: And And have her, like, I like the fact that she's she saves Ethan and she's the one kind of saves Ethan Hunt at the very end and revives him and stops him. She kills Billy Crudup. Spoilers, people. Um, <laughs> but it is complicated. It is <laughs> it is complicated trying to explain that how the climax plays out. And I am I'm looking forward to her coming back in
1: fallout. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that she's still in the mix.
0: Right, right, right. And so let's move on to Mission Possible Ghost Protocol. This one, we have Brad Bird in the director's chair. And the story is that the the IMF team are set up during a mission um, while well, in, in infiltrating the Kremlin and are blamed for a terrorist act. But they decide to take matters in their own hand and try and save the IMF and their team while, while exposing the true villains here. And so I will ask you your lead up to Ghost Protocol and first viewing of it.
1: So so by the time we got to Ghost Protocol I was that was where I was like all right new mission impossible I'm excited like I had finally turned the corner and and I was excited I was following the development. I remember in, in the lead up you know they were talking about <clears throat> Jeremy Renner sort of positioning him as the secondary lead so that they could eventually uh, Transition Tom Cruise out. I don't think anybody's talking about that anymore, which is kind of funny. But uh, I I remember seeing it. They 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 premiered it a week early on IMAX exclusively. Um, so like it it opened wide on whatever date it was, but one week earlier you could go see it on on an IMAX screen, and so uh, that was the best way possible to watch that movie. And I remember I was it came out this was December, so my. My uh, fall classes had just wound down, and I remember because I teach a Friday morning class. So my, I let my class go, and then I went to the theater, and I, you know it was like Friday morning. The theater was almost empty, and just I'm watching this movie, and I watched it a week early, so it felt like like I discovered something, you know? Because because remember the third one didn't perform as well as they would have liked. It was it was certainly, and I feel like the third one took the hit for the second one. For like the negative reaction to the second one, I feel like not as many people went and saw the third one so so the fact that number four felt like a surprise I think is because because people had sort of written off this series to some extent and and what a pleasant surprise it was oh my gosh I mean it's just it's a it's a yarn man it's a caper you know you're going to, it it's exactly what what this movie should be it's just pure escapism, there are stakes, but they don't feel. Like overwhelming to some extent, you know our heroes will get out of it, but the fun of it is seeing how they get out of it. Uh, and and I mean, what can you say that the the scene where where Tom Cruise is climbing that building, it's amazing. You know, it's still amazing.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I kick myself for not seeing this in theaters. I do not know why I didn't see this in theaters. Especially I didn't. I'm just kicking myself not seeing an IMAX because you got to see the opening to Dark Knight Rises in certain yes. IMAX like, Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. And so as uh, maybe I was trying to prevent myself from being too hyped up for Rises to seeing that. I'm not sure. But I did not see this in theaters, and I really am mad at myself because <laughs> I was a fan of Brad Bird's movies. I was a huge fan of, of The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, and Ratatouille. So... Him making his live-action debut with this movie, it should have been a win-win for me. I do not know what was going on at that time. I think maybe it was like I was with school at the end of my semester, and that's why I was trying to get all this stuff done. I do not know. But I did not see this as a series. I saw this when it came out in home video because – and I was like, maybe – because I heard like the fourth one's the best. I'm like, the fourth one can't be the best. Who are you? <laughs> I'm like – please, all right relax well let's let 's settle see. down yeah let, let's let 's see this uh fourth movie, and the opening with like in the prison and with the d martins uh, ain 't that a kick in the head like sequence i 'm like, okay, this movie has me, I was wrong i 'm in, <laughs> and it obviously culminates with the burst Khalifa heist and another jaw-dropping moment or sequence that happens in this movie and spoilers that's my favorite sequence of this movie is the Burst Khalifa climbing
1: yep I'm right there with you
0: and so like are your feelings now going back and re this like how do you feel like this movie holds up compared to the other movies and Rogue Nation
1: um I think I I mean it's hard for me to I think I probably like Rogue Nation slightly more uh but I mean this it's still just such a darn good movie you know i mean it it's it's to me what mission impossible should be i say should like in quotes because everybody has their own idea but given given what the tv show was like to me this is a big screen version of the tv series and that's what i i you know right down to to the opening credits scene which which this one does uh, rogue nation does and also the first one does where during the opening credits you see scenes from the movie but, uh, from the you know what's going to happen but you don't know the context i love that they found a very clever way to do that in the opening uh, credit sequence for this movie where you know we're following the you know the call it the fuse as it's burning and we're seeing all these scenes from the movie and we don't know exactly what like they're filmed in a different way i just thought that was really clever uh paula patton uh again i had such a huge crush on her after this movie you know i wish uh, they would have found a way to bring her back
0: i agree because like it's it's her and i forget the other actor's name in mission possible three like maggie q i think she's fantastic um, and I forget the other the the uh, oh,
1: it's uh, uh Jonathan Rice Myers.
0: Jonathan Rice Myers. Like, I wish he came back. No disrespect to um Jeremy Renner and Simon Pegg movie. I just wish those characters kind of came back later on. I know people speculate. Uh, I know, like one of the YouTube essay um, filmmakers and who does video essays. Who I've sent you the links to to Patrick yeah. Williams. He had oh, speculated great. like he or a wish list is like have all the team members come back for one last. Uh, mission movie and I'm like I would be all for that especially Paula Patton because I think she's fantastic in this movie as well
1: yeah and and uh uh I mean worth worth mentioning Renner too I think uh, you know I I do feel like he 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 brings an element of of what the hell is going on that I that I like uh both in this one and in the next one even though he's part he's in the mix but he's He's hi. He's he's like a surrogate for the audience to some extent. Yeah, I'm talking about Mission Impossible, sweetie. <laughs> I I record in my closet, so uh, my daughter heard me talking, so she she found me in here. Sorry, that's okay. <laughs> but uh, no, I I think uh, man, I don't know. It just it works. The 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 the. Uh, the Kremlin sequence, how they how they infiltrate the Kremlin, the whole thing with with Ethan, and he's got like the the general jacket, and then he just flips it inside out, and it's like a regular jacket. And the whole it's it's the, to me that's what Mission Impossible should be. It should be these these bonkers escapades where you're like, how are they even doing this? And they just have the exact right gadget for it and everything, and it just it just works. So to me, I think with movie four, we finally reach a point where we see obviously it's it is a Tom Cruise star vehicle, but it's a Tom Cruise ensemble vehicle, and it really uh everybody gets a chance to shine you know
0: yeah, and I think one of the greatest elements of this movie is like we have all the gadgets, especially the false hallway like thing oh, they
1: use that's so great I love that
0: and but like a great screenwriting is that like all right, this like you want this but here's the obstacle and this is like is great screen right here that all the gadgets break down and all the gadgets right. fail and I think that's a great addition to this movie. I even love the moment where like Simon Pegg stands up in front of the camera in front of the false hallway and so we see a giant version of Simon Pegg's he- face in the hallway while the guard's looking away right before the guard turns back. And of course the gloves like the sticky gloves you're supposed to use to climb up the Burj Khalifa and how that fails.
1: That fa- yeah. Right. It's it's just a, a series of of uh, uh I was going to say unfortunate events but it, it's just it's it shows how uh, the team is good even without their gadgets so it's fun to see the gadgets but that they know how to work around not having them either.
0: Oh, totally. And I think one of the other actresses I want to um Give a shout out for is Leah Seydoux. I think that's how you pronounce yeah. her last name. Yeah. I think she's fantastic in this. I think this is the first time I saw her before I saw her in other movies, like Blue is the Warmest Color and, and elsewhere. And so I think she's fantastic as the assassin, and she just has cold presence about her. And when her and Paula, like, you know, her and Paula Patton are going to fight at one point, you're just yeah. waiting for that moment to happen. And, yeah. and like, the only, like, I guess, like, downside as, like, actor wise, because I feel like um, the actor who plays Kurt Hendricks, Michael. Um, oh,
1: is it Nykvis?
0: Uh, uh, Nykvis, I think that's how you pronounce it. Like he was, he was the in the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo um, trilogy. I just feel like he's not as interesting as
1: I think it's as Philip Seymour Hoffman.
0: Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, then again, how do you follow that up?
1: Yeah, you know what's funny is what what I what I remember about the timing of this movie's release is it came out like a week. I think a week before um, the Sherlock Holmes sequel, which, and so uh, that had Numi Rapace and this has Michael uh, Nyquist. And I just thought it was funny. Like both, both of the dragon tattoo people. It's like, ah, well they're crossing over. Good for them. You know, like literally within a week of each other.
0: Oh yeah. And, and the fact that like, um, we have with with these um, moments, or with these characters here and like he will get his hands dirty and everything which is interesting because yeah. it's rare it's like, it's so easy for them to be like, oh no we're just gonna have the henchman do it the entire time but another actor I really love obviously with Jeremy Renner because I think he, he's like he's the audience at that point like being right. thrown into this world because he's like reacting like how we would react especially with um when he has to use like the weird chain mail that he's going to have to go into the hot computer vent at one point. Right. And, he, and he's like, <laughs> yeah. like magnets. Yeah. Um, how does that work? And like and how he reacts because he's very subtle with like his facial chicks. Like, wait, uh, like explain it to me again, please. In English.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think honestly, Br- Brant is one of, one of uh, Jeremy Renner's better characters because, um, uh, I mean, he's fine as Hawkeye, but I mean, we've we haven't never really gotten him to gotten to see him do much as Hawkeye, unfortunately. But like, I remember within a year of this movie, he was in uh, the the Born what was that Born Legacy? Was that? Yeah, was that uh, that was like a, that was like a year after this, I think, right? I believe so. And and you know, the, like. He doesn't get a chance to really make much of a mark in that movie. You know what I mean? Obviously, partly it's because we don't want him. We want the real born. Sadly, <laughs> exactly, yeah, it's not his fault. But it is kind of a nothing character, unfortunately. It it it, it was like a blank slate. And I feel like Brant, both in this one and the next one, kind of plays to Renner's strength because I think he's a charming guy. I mean, I think he's fun to watch, um, given the right kind of given the right character to play. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the best performance I saw of him recently is Wind River.
1: I think oh, yeah. he, he's fantastic in it, but that whole so movie is stacked. That movie, like, nobody talks about that movie. It's so good.
0: It is, like, I did a re- I think it was, was the last, no, it was a few months ago. I did the, I forget the writer of that. Um, oh, because he also wrote Sicario. He also wrote Hell or High Water. I did. Oh, it's
1: uh, uh, Sheridan, Taylor Tar- Sheridan. Taylor
0: Sheridan. I did the marathon. I watched all three of those back to back to back. And as because I just wanted to see, like, see the, because, like, there was a video essayist, like, uh, Ryan Hollinger, who did a video on, like, the certain themes, the running um, uh, characteristics of all three of those movies. And when were I had not seen before, so I'm like, all right, I'll put this on. And it was his direct-table debut. And, and for some reason, that movie just really messed me up, especially that flashback to what happened to John Bernthal and the woman in question that, that sparks, like, the entire story. And how that movie ends with Jeremy Renner like on the mountain with the culprit. I mean, fantastic yeah. movie, and I absolutely adore his performance
1: in that. Great, like that's a movie I hope people more more people will discover on on streaming and stuff.
0: I I hope so too, and I and I really think like it's one of those things that will grow. And I think will hopefully gain an audience as it goes forward. Um, another actor I want to talk about, obviously. Simon Pegg gets to be in the field in this one as Benji Dunn and tries to desperately use masks, but does not happen. But I love his his contribution to this movie compared to the third one. Like he does great in third one, but I think this really starts to come into his own here.
1: Yeah, and you know, I mean, obviously by by this point he had he had already become Scotty, and I uh, and I think uh, Abrams was just like, oh man, you know, people like him. He's just uh, he's just a likable presence and. And you know certainly for me, because I, I watch the movies with my kids, and you know when they watch the first one, they're like, "Where's Benji?" Like they like him the best. Oh, that's that's just wonderful right there. <laughs> like, oh, it's no fun without Benji. So, so yeah, we're talking about Benji. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, another actor I wanted to to mention real briefly was Josh Holloway who's in this for like, you know, 90 seconds or whatever he's in it for. Uh and I it's such a shame that they just kill him off so quickly, but I think he's he sort of he serves the same function as as uh, what's her name, Carrie Russell in the previous one where it's somebody we know and somebody we sort of reflexively like so that it 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 hurts a little bit when we lose them.
0: Oh, totally. And is it's very interesting here because another thing I want to like bring up because this is photographed by Robert Elswith who was the usual cinematographer for Paul Thomas Anderson. And this is where like, it, obviously with success of the dark Knight, IMAX cameras became viable for filmmakers to use in feature films. And I love the view utilizing that technology here to make that sequence in the Birch Khalifa, that, so much more unique, and, yeah. and especially watching on Blu-ray. I'm sure on the 4K Blu-ray, if there is one, it probably looks even more immaculate. And it's it's something that like, I don't want to like get on a soapbox. Like yeah, like this is a advantage to celluloid film to digital technology. It's just because there is a tactileness, there is a believability that we've all been trained to accept. Like yes, that's movies, and that's how I experience things, and so. That's why I really enjoy it. And I love the fact that this movie would spark it to use IMAX going forward in certain sequences in these movies.
1: Yeah, totally agree.
0: And so uh, final thoughts on Mission Impossible Ghost
1: Protocol. It's close to perfect. I mean, I I can't – for the life of me, I can't – I could nitpick it. But I think that if you're looking for just two hours of sheer escapism – it's pretty hard to beat. I think in fact I would say out of all five, it's the most pure escapism out of any of them. You know, it's it's just a ride.
0: I can't I can't argue with that, especially the the car chase and the sandstorm. well, well also Tom Cruise outrunning a sandstorm at one point, like him continuing to run. <laughs> like like I you I can't argue with that. Like he he's going to outrun that sandstorm. I will believe that. And I even love the moment where Tom Cruise is like is going to be able to stop the nuclear missile from detonating over San Francisco,
1: and he screams, "Mission accomplished!" (laughs) And it does nothing. I I like that the movie hangs a lampshade on that at the end with with Ving Rhames. You know, yeah, it's like you really said that. Like, (laughs) yeah, I did. Oh, and and Tim, that's another thing. Actually, I I love two things. That number one, they made sure to bring in Ving Rames even if it was only at the end, just to be like, no, he's still here. He's still part of the mix. Um, and then that that they did not, in fact, uh, have Julia die in between movies. Uh, and and that is, you know, because that, that was something that that Brad Bird talked about. Uh, that he didn't. He originally she was going to be dead, but he didn't like that because he was like it. It made the journey that we went on in the previous film seem uh, kind of pointless. Um, and so, so the fact that he made the conscious choice of saying no, Julia's still alive. She's there. I, I love both of those two things. Very, very smart choices. Uh, by by someone who has consistently been such a smart storyteller. I mean, the fact that this is Brad Bird's first live-action movie is almost immaterial because we know the kind of director he is from from the animation that he's made.
0: Exactly. And you're right. I mean, like that, that was a very smart idea because it was so easy because there was not a lot of continuity in these movies. There's a few lingering things like Bing Rain. So obviously we have Tom Cruise. And having Julia in this movie, and then they had separate for her safety in a typical, like, superhero fashion. They're like, I can't be yeah. with you. I can't protect you if I'm still in this life. And I can't, I'm not going to give it up because I'm a crazy person. So <laughs> this is what's going to happen. And yeah, because I, I think Brad Bird is just a natural storyteller. Yeah. And, and, like, everything he does is, is very unique. And so I think that's incredibly smart in his decision. And speaking of, like, Cameos like yes, we have Bing Rames in there at the very end, and I even love like the joke like like oh it get like Benji says like it can't get any crazier than that can it? And like well <laughs> and it's like yeah the, the two moments like, again yeah, we are winking at the audience here. But Tom Wilkinson as the secretary, we never see the secretary before or like oh that's true. And I, I'll I'll watch Tom Wilkinson in anything, and even if he's in this for like three minutes, st- like he steals that scene for me.
1: He totally does. And, and you feel sad when he dies. I mean, that says something, you know?
0: Yeah, because you don't, like, A, you don't think he's going to die, and B, you don't think they're going to kill the secretary off after we finally meet him.
1: Right. <laughs> Very true.
0: But then again, I'm just like, I love him so much as Falcone in Batman Begins, I want him to use that over-the-top Chicago accent in everything. And I'm like, like, Mr. Hunt, <laughs> that's the power of fear. And you always only fear we don't understand, like I like I just want him to, to do that accent. And everything I don't I want to redub with a patriot with that accent. Like <laughs>
1: like uh, damn him, but damn that man. <laughs> we need to show him the power of fear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, That's hilarious. Uh, Jupiter,
0: Mars, come here uh, now! Just now, just going to Southie Boston accent right there. I apologize, people. I I am messing up my uh, accents there, but. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, I think it's like since like I've had the five Blu-ray sets since it came out, I think that's the one I've gone back and watched the most because you're right. It is It's just like the purest action, right? It is much like three. It just keeps going and, and, and everything keeps escalating. Even to the point where Tom Cruise drives off a, a car platform and plummets 30 feet to the ground and hopes to God that the airbag will save him. <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> oh man, I just love it. It's it's just, it's just fun, man. I mean, you know, what else can you ask for in a movie like this? You know,
0: that's exactly what summer blockbusters is supposed to be. It's supposed to be fun, even though this did came out in September. But that's what these kind of tentpole movies are supposed to do. You're supposed to have fun. Like, yes, you could tell interesting and dynamic stories, which they do to an extent. And we have the one the moments of of characterization here. And one last thing, we have a callback to the first Mission Impossible where we have the uh, blonde henchman with the uh, ski mask with the eye holes sewn up in here just like I was in the first one when we met Max. I find that's a nice little callback to the first yeah, movie.
1: Yeah, subtle. Just a subtle little thing.
0: And I'm just like – I, I was asking like, so what is it like to be the the mistaken from the guy from Die Hard? I, I bet you that guy gets it all the time. I think that's what <laughs> – I bet you that's what happens. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on to the most recent one, with the exception of uh, Fallout, which is about to come out uh, Mission Possible Rogue Nation. So the story of this, of this one is very much like the previous ones, it is at, but different from the previous ones where it is a legit sequel to Ghost Protocol because at the end of Ghost Protocol, they set up the idea of a rogue nation. And what we find out here is that Ethan and his team try and figure out who the rogue nation is, but they've infiltrated the IMF and are dismantling it, and they have to stop them. And so your feelings of going into Rogue Nation when it came out.
1: Oh, it was just excitement. It was excitement because oh, here's this series that uh, I've come to really enjoy, and I know we're going to get another fun ride. Uh, you know, I will say this. I remember very distinctly. Um, uh, I I mentioned this uh, like back when when Chris McQuarrie signed on to direct. I I remember talking to Brian on my on my show, and and I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. That's what stupid Zachy circa twenty. 12 or 13 said, because I was like, he's the guy who, d- he did Jack Reacher, he should be the Jack Reacher Tom Cruise movie guy, and he get somebody else to do the Mission Impossible movies, you know, and and I was dumb, it was a, I don't know why I would have thought that, because he just blew the doors off, and and he did amazing, you know um, so so that was, I wouldn't even say I was trepidatious, because I knew he would do a good job, but I was, for some reason I was like, keep them separate, because I'm stupid, I don't know why <laughs> um, but it, just Again, it, it it was excitement going in. Every trailer had me more juiced. Uh, I remember in the lead up to this movie, um, the the as a part of the press tour, they had a, a Rogue Nation escape room set up. And so, um, me and my, my kid, who is he's eleven now, so he was uh, he would have been like eight, I guess. And me and him were in this escape room trying to get out, and it's just I just tie that in like the fun. The fun of that experience, the rogue nation escape room um but but the movie itself uh, I'll tell you what I love is that the thing that was all over the ads uh, which is crews hanging off the airplane, I love that they knocked that out in the first ten minutes, five minutes, whatever it is yeah, it's the and, opener, it's the opening it, set piece, don't you love that they're like, Psh, we don't we're not even worried, we got so much good shit coming like here's yeah look at this, this is awesome, but just you wait, you know. <laughs> yeah it was it's one of the things like
0: that that was like much like how in the current uh for fallout like we have him in the truck coming into a head on collision with another semi or him hanging yeah. up the helicopter like like all right, those are the set pieces we've seen like there I bet you there's things that we are we're not gonna expect whatsoever, especially all the early reviews the early previews that have happened, the people raving about the set pieces, which like obviously this movie is these series of movies are built on The espionage, yes, but it's the action set pieces as the movies go on have become a defining part of this franchise. And with me going into this, I was like, okay, cool. I really enjoyed Ghost Protocol. I'm really excited for Rogue Nation. But this is also the year of Man from Uncle and Spectre. And I'm just like, huh, we got three big espionage movies that year. And I I thought, like, Spectre, that's going to be the biggest hit. That's the one I'm probably going to enjoy the most. Yes, I enjoy. Mission Impossible and the James Bond movies, but, like, this is before I kind of really soured on Skyfall. I was coming off that initial high for that movie. I'm like, Spectre, it's gonna be great, and we're all gonna have a really good time that, by the end of that year, I'm like, Whew, Rogue Nation, man. I was, I I yeah. apologize for discounting you, and you were the best espionage movie that year.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I, and it's funny, too, because because Rogue Nation and uh, Spectre are are telling very similar stories. I mean, it's, you know, they're they're both – it's the organization that, you know, the, the good guy team and the bad guy team has to go against. And, you know, it's very there's, like, superficial similarities, which I noted at the time. And it, to me, it was just like, you know, after seeing Spectre, I was just like, Rogue Nation just did it better, you know?
0: Yeah, because, like, the idea is being, like, we do not need an antiquated system like this. We have drones. We don't really – and we can just hack into anything. We don't need – people on the ground do being disguise and everything and trying to extract information that way. Like, but both of these movies are testers. Like, no, this is why we need it. Rogue nation does does it a lot better because I think it's more like the action scenes. There are more of them and they're better. I'm sorry, specter. Like you have like maybe three set pieces and one of them is very boring. I I think that car chase throughout, um, Rome. I think that's just like, I'm going on this alley and this alley. Yeah. And oh, I'm like, totally. and like, yes, you have a great fight between Daniel Craig and Dave Bautista. Like, that is your highlight of that movie. But, like, here in Rogue Nature you have several set pieces that are fantastic, including the opening with the airplane. But I'll ask you, what is your favorite set piece in the
1: movie? Uh, so, well, we, we start off, obviously, the, the, the whole – I love the whole teaser. Uh, everything about it, uh, the, the escalating tension. And then, and then, up oh, here's Ethan running. We got to have the Ethan running. Yep. And then, I mean, it's, it's almost like checking off the box. It's like checking the mission Impossible boxes before we even hit, uh, hit the, the, the opening title sequence, which I love. we got to have the running, got to have the crazy death defying stunt, you know? Um, and, and then, um, Oh my gosh, there's the, I just saw this last week. So let me think um, the, the I think I'll tell you what I what I like most about this movie is, and I said I've said this a few times, but it's it evokes another aspect of the TV show which we've never done, which is they've the the IM team has it all figured out. We just don't realize that they have it all figured out. So when when we when we come to the end sequence with Solomon Lane in that box, and and. And he realizes what happened. That's the same time we as the audience are like, oh, damn. See, they, they, got, they got it all figured out. And that's what I loved most about the TV show is that it would always end with like, whatever plan they have. We don't realize what, they, what they've been planning, but everything sort of gets figured out that they've, that they've been working on for the whole episode. So to me, that's what this is, where we think – that oh my gosh Ethan's in real trouble but it's like he's actually not he was he was 10 steps ahead of the bad guy the whole time
0: yeah because like it's a series of cons that they play yes. on the audience and the other characters of the movie and it's like like all right how much further can this go like how can they they can't like you can't pull the wool over my eyes again and they continually to do it in this movie
1: yeah and and i'll tell you you know i I talked before about how the the teamwork aspect of it you know at the end you've got you've got lane in that box and and you've got you know Luther here and benji here and and brandt here and and then ethan's like meet the impossible mission force i'm like oh, awesome that's what it is it's this team you know i just i love the teamwork aspect of it
0: definitely and it's like oh right. yes and and the fact that we have um uh, like Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa Faust and like how she's going to become like, like seemingly like, yeah, she's, she's for the British intelligence as, as part of the syndicate, but she is just as good as Ethan Hunt, like if not better in some ways. And the fact that like, yeah, that she gets, she ones up some a few times and you're like, okay, you want her to become part of the team. You want them, like you want this unit going forward. Like, yes, we have finally reached what we need as a team. It was like you want to see them have go on continue adventures together.
1: Yes. Yeah, and and uh, I'm like such a broken record here, but such a crush on Rebecca Ferguson after this movie. <laughs> <laughs> they just find the right people to cast in these movies. I have I have crushes on like every female uh lead that they bring in, you know? Even Maggie Q in the third one actually.
0: Yeah, and Maggie Q is just gorgeous and I think like the 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 dress that they have her wear for, like, she's supposed to be an eye catcher for the characters that, in that scene. And I just, I, think, I just love the costume design that she has right there in that, in yeah. that scene
1: when she's trying to lure
0: Philip Seymour Hoffman into the ruse.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, just to tie in with, with Rogue Nation, uh, you know, the the, the dress that uh, uh, Rebecca Ferguson is wearing in, in the whole the opera sequence, which is, by the way, I, that's another one of my favorite scenes is the is Ethan's fight with that guy on the risers in, in the opera. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. I mean, it, that get, that gets to what we were talking about, where when you make Ethan more vulnerable, the fact that he's like, like he's he's doing a John McClane as he's fighting this guy.
0: Yeah, uh, obviously the man is younger than him and is taller than him, and he's just like, "All right, I have to, I have to think smarter, not I have to, and not fight harder against it because I'm not gonna, I'm muscle the muscle, I'm gonna lose." And I love how that sequence—it's pretty much—it is almost like a 21st century version of Alfred Hitchcock's "The Man Who Knew Too Much" sequence. Uh, oh, in with a loud sound is going to cover an assassination attempt.
1: Good call! Wow, didn't even make the connection, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's perfect.
0: Cause I am a Hitchcock nut. And that's why like, like I can't remember siblings uh, birthdays, but shit like that. I can remember. So (laughs) do you know what priorities? (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. But yeah, like that sequence alone, like, like you could take the sound out of that and just have like the score underneath that sequence. And you know exactly what's going to happen.
1: Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so one more thing, Uh, the stakes feel real for our characters. Um, you know, there, towards the end of the movie when Benji gets captured, I legit, I was like fifty-fifty. He might not make it out of this movie. I can
0: see that, and I, that's why I was so nervous. I'm like, because like your kids and like me, like he's a fan favorite at this point, and you do not want to see him to die. And he's like, like yeah, he's, and then he ends up with a bomb shaft to him. Like yeah, like this he could go,
1: you know. And and so I mean, I think when they, like I said, you, you're like, you know, Ethan Hunt is probably not gonna. He's he's probably fine, but the honestly the other team members they're they're to some extent they're all disposable.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean like it is a criticism of long form media that like you could have like certain TV shows or movie franchises like oh they're untouchable and nothing's going to happen and they'll probably make it out alive unless the stories are being written by either. George R. R. Martin, Stephen Moffat, or Joss Whedon. Like, there's a meme with all three of them, like, those three men walk into a bar, everybody you love dies. And so, like, it, 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 but, like, it is a testament to Macquarie's writing to make you believe the fact, like, as a filmmaker, like, Benji could, could die and anybody could die in this situation. And you think that Brant does turn on them and you're like, are they going to fight? Are they going to fight to the death at one point?
1: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. And and uh, uh, what a great villain! It, it's um, what's 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 his name? I'm sorry. That, it is Solomon Lane, played by Sean Harris. Sean Harris, that's right. He's I mean he's so like yeah, so Weasley, like and and you hate him from the jump, man, because cause when he when he kills that that uh, young lady in the record store. I mean they may they put you against him right from the start, and so the 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 culmination um, when once again it's it's Ethan and Solomon Lane through glass it's such a perfect reversal
0: exactly and like two things one when i was rewatching it for this episode he's in the record store already when ethan walks in he's in another booth i never noticed that and two he's like the series moriarty because we haven't had a villain that's really like yes we've had great villains but like this is someone who's almost like a mirror image to ethan hunts very much like how Durey Scott's is, but just in a very different way. Like, like, Oh my God. Like, yes, this is like the foil that Ethan Hunt needs as a, as a character.
1: Yeah, totally agree. I mean, he, he's, uh, to me, uh, in terms of the baddies in this series, it's, uh, it's, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and, uh, Sean Harris. Both of them are, are fantastic.
0: Yes. And I think this is redeeming for him as an actor compared to Prometheus. So I'm just like, like, you're the map maker in Prometheus. I got lost. And I'm like, how do you do that? And then do you, ha- <laughs> it just, uh, you got turned into a monster and you got flamethrowered <laughs> and gunned down at one point. Like, it's just like uh, Prometheus is a good looking movie. I'll say that. And Michael Fassman <laughs> is great. And, um, uh, uh, no mirror Peace is fantastic, but like,
1: <sighs> <laughs> I'm with you, man. I, I, yeah, that movie didn't, didn't do much for me.
0: I'll watch alien covenant before you like that. That's saying something. I enjoy alien covenant more (laughs) than Prometheus, but, um, and so do you have a particular set piece that stands out for you in this movie?
1: Well, like I said, the, 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 I really like the, the opera fight on the risers. I think it's very clever. It's very different from the other stuff that we get in this series. Uh, and, and, and the whole, the whole teaser sequence from, from stem to stern. I loved it.
0: Awesome. I think for me, it's when they're in Morocco and they have to go into the vault and Ethan has to hold his breath for three minutes.
1: Oh yeah. That's great too. Yeah.
0: And, and cause fear of drowning is one of my like, like things that terrifies me despite, I still go swimming in the ocean and I still love it. I, I won't let that stop me, but <laughs> just watch that scene in, in the theater and then watching at home for rewatching it. And I was like, held my breath. I try to hold my breath. I'm just like, I can't do this. Like, I'm sorry. Like, and you think like, Ethan could go here, and and the fact that we have somebody as confident as Rebecca Ferguson as Faust in this, like maybe this is how she, series changes and that she takes over or something like that, and then it culminates with the car and bike chase afterwards. I think watching the bike chase again for this review, like I was literally gripping my knees, just like watching, it like oh my god, like they're going so fast
1: and they're like yeah. one false move and they will crash and oh he he should have been just a, a smear when that when that bike crashed
0: oh yeah and, and like <laughs> and when she stops and waits in the middle road for him and he that comes around the bend and like like you're dead there I'm sorry he's just paced at that point <laughs> like he should be like like the road, road runner at that point is like just smear across the blacktop as as yeah. <laughs> as at the coyote excuse me at the road runner goes up uh, um flying by. Um but I even love the moment when he in the car chase where he tells Ben he asks Benji are are you buckled in and Benji's like, You're asking me that now yeah, before now. <laughs> before they go airborne.
1: <laughs> and and you know again that's that's something that I really like. As the series has progressed, it's leaned into sort of Ethan's like it's like he's just he's so tired of having to do this stuff all the time. Like he's he's constantly like, all right, let's do this. Like it's it's a lot of that, and I love you know in in the uh, in the car chase scene we see that, and then when he's fighting the guy, and even in the pre, in in Rogue Nation, right when um when 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 he's like no shit to to Benji, you know, and he's like hanging. <laughs> like, I, I love the further we've gotten, we've moved away from invincible Superman Ethan Hunt, even though clearly that's what he is, because we just said like that that bike he should have just been a smear. But I love that the 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 series sort of. Adds these little bits of nuance that just make him feel more like a real guy who's just just trying to keep ahead, just trying to keep one one you know, uh, just his head above water, you know.
0: Yeah, and I love like when he jumps from the one side of the hotel to the other and goes protocol, and he clocks his head against the top of the window before he gets grabbed by everybody and dragged back in. I'm like, you're a custer. Like, like <laughs> you have serious CTE damage right there from that impact. I know you got your hands up. I'm like, I'm like, you should be bleeding out of the ears, sir. <laughs> right. There was a YouTube page. I don't know if they still do it, but like, um, like how many lives it would take, and it would go through movies and see all the wounds that these characters would endure. And like, like, would they? How many lives it would take them to survive? Like, how many like lives it would take John McClane to actually survive Die Hard? Like when he's breaking his finger fingers trying to grab the vent from falling and. Bleeding out of his toes and being shot, etc. i like, I want somebody to do that for the Mission Impossible franchise. how many lives it was taken to survive for Ethan Hunt to uh, make it out of here? And so, oh, go on.
1: No, it's I, it's it, it's hilarious to me. I mean, I I think. Uh... You know, movie logic is obviously such that yeah, the, these these guys would be either a fine mist or a thick paste. But we, you know, this many movies in, we just kind of go along with it. And I I like that. I mean, you know, what are we twenty twenty two years into this series, and and Tom Cruise is still doing it. Like that's unheard of. You know what I mean?
0: It's it's so funny because like how it, how he's able to do these stunts is that. He'll give his salary away to the bond company to ensure the the insurance for the movie, but he'll he'll earn it on the back end as a producer. So that's how he's able to keep doing these stunts and still being paid for, which I think is really unique in how he's so inclusive to the stunt team and everything, and he's very gracious about that. It's it's just a really admirable thing to see an actor to do that.
1: Yeah, I totally agree.
0: And final thoughts before we go into our predictions for Fallout
1: you know it's it, it, like i said it it's a real squeaker uh which one i like better ghost protocol or rogue nation i give a slight edge to rogue nation and i think it's it's remarkable that that again we're 22 years into a series where it, each installment really does feel like an event now and it and it feels like we've it, that we've seen that growth curve over the last 3 movies
0: I agree completely. I mean, the Sea is coming where it's to where it's gone. I can understand how certain people can be like, "Oh, it's lost its way and it's lost its identity." Like, I can see people making those complaints. However, for me as a viewer, it's just fascinating to see how this franchise has grown and become this. It's, it's one of those things. Like, new Mission Possible comes out. Like, oh, I am there. I am not yeah. gonna. I'm. It's like. Mm, must-see movies stuff like that how it is for like must-see tv like this is like yes i it's proven to me time and time again and i'm just really excited for it and so i'll ask you as we lead up to mission impossible uh fallout what do you expect
1: um i expect uh henry cavill to load his fists and and to just uh, to want two hours of that just just henry cavill loading his fists and i'll be i'll be happy just what we saw in the trailer uh you know what chris Macquarie's is coming back so here's me exact opposite of what i said five years ago i'm like give him give him all of them let him do every single one of these and i'll be fine uh, i think the fact that we do have for the first time ever uh, a director returning that says something about just sort of the, the alchemy that they accomplished in the last one you know and yeah let's bottle that you know let's let's uh uh, uh, let's do the let's if we get uh, Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie teaming up from now until the end of creation, I think that'll be just fine. And I think Tom Cruise, by the way, will be alive until the end of creation because I don't know he he bathes in baby blood or something. I don't know he's doing something right.
0: Yeah, he's he's pulling Elizabeth Bathory. We just do not know about it, and I <laughs> That's it's right. like, um, And I agree. Like, yes, it is the first time we have a returning director and writer to the franchise in terms of like being a writer director and. It's continuing It is a direct sequel to Rogue Nation, and it's the fallout of it. No pun intended. Uh, I, that, that was genuinely. Like, I know I make really bad puns ever, but that was, that was unintentional. And seeing Henry Cavill and his magnificent mustache, I
1: want to see what a $100 million mustache looks like. Man, that, that mustache is a bigger Superman villain than Doomsday.
0: Boom, boom, shh. <laughs> <sighs> oh. Boom. I mean, like, I, I, I am tempted to buy a fake mustache and glue that on and go see the movie and just, like, take a selfie, like, or take video, like, oh, uh, what, like, and go up to the cashier, like, uh, what movie would you like to uh, Uh, two for Mission Impossible Fallout, please, and just, like, yeah, like, and just hashtag mustache gate. I mean, I, I think that's what I need to do. I, I plan to do something very similar for Shazam, where I'm going to scream Shazam at the cashier asking for my tickets. Um And so... Yeah, and I and like I would, like you said, Magic Four, like Henry Cavill like loading his wrists like they were guns. I saw somebody like put like gun cocking sound uh, effects underneath like click for that trailer, and I'm like, ah, that's funny. And seeing him like we're gonna have to see Henry Cavill and Tom Cruise duke it out. i like, I'm all for that. And I want to see what Lighting Sean up. Harris is gonna do.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because Sean Harris, when they were making the previous one, he wanted them to kill him off because he didn't want to do a sequel. And then they changed the ending at the end to have uh, Solomon Lane alive, and he was like, "Fine, as long as you don't bring me back." <laughs> and they brought him back
0: anyway. I'm like, is "That this the dangling, just a huge check right beyond the camera frame. Like, all right, this is for your day. You get it right here. You get the rest of it at the end. Like, I, I, I just, is he just opposed to sequels, or, or he didn't do that yeah, character I again? Guess
1: that was his whole thing. Yeah, he he just." Uh, he's doing it for the art, man. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't know. That's fair. I understand like Edward Norton's a very similar way with his movies. I understand like he was, he was intrigued to come back for doing a Hulk again, but he would have to be a writer. Like he does with all of his other movies, but it, it's curious to see actors like that. I mean, it's certain principles by them. And like, I can't, I can't knock you for that. Um, you, there are certain actors where it's like, it's quantity over quality. So I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. And seeing Michelle Monaghan come back—that's who also I'm looking forward to—and see what kind of um, role she's
1: going to have in this one. Rebecca Ferguson and Michelle Monahan in one movie. Come on, let's get Paula Patton in there, and I'm just—I'll uh, be—I'll be a happy camper. I can't argue with that
0: either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I just hope it. Like, like, I'm curious, like what what's the franchise going to do afterwards? Like, it, will it be like? Will this be the last one? Will there be another? We'll have to wait and see. All I want is an entertaining Mission Impossible movie, and I've been burned by two movies I was looking forward to this year with Deadpool two, and um, what was I say? I was not a huge fan of that. I was like, oh, eh, it was okay. I forget what the other one was. It was that good, huh? Um,
1: couldn't have been that disappointing if it. Yeah, no, too. no. Like, I don't have the vitriol
0: and everything. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, like Deadpool two. Like everybody else is laughing in the theater, and I'm sitting there just like
1: stoic, and I'm like. You know these are the same jokes as the first one, right? I mean, <laughs> that's the problem with comedy sequels, just in general. It's like, you know, comedy sequels are like horror sequels. It's like uh, you gotta, you tend to play a lot of the same beats, so it's not as funny slash scary the second time.
0: Yeah, it's it's a like I want to see a really tremendous like 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 uh, maybe like the Zucker brothers like maybe Airplane two Airplane part 2, uh, I mean uh, uh, Hot Shots part
1: two. Maybe, yeah. like,
0: that's one, like, a great comedy sequel.
1: That's a great comedy sequel. I agree with that.
0: Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's a few jokes in Deadpool 2 I really enjoyed. Everything else, I was like, eh, all right, I can take it or leave it.
1: Anyway. It, it, I, I went into Deadpool 2 with with really my – because I, I was fine on the first one. I, I I didn't love it, but I was fine with it. So I, I, I didn't go in uh, – to the sequel with high expectations. The only thing I really wanted was a kick-ass cable because I loved cable growing up. So I got that and I was happy with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, full disclosure, I, I'm not a Deadpool fan. I, I I'm I, and like, it's more of the fact of his fan base, like, Oh, he's so cool. And I'm like, I why? Totally... He breaks the fourth wall.
1: Yep. Oh uh, yeah. I'm right there with you. Totally agree.
0: And so I begrudgingly went to go see it because my ex, my time had a really terrible weekend. I knew that would cheer her up. So I'm like, We'll go and see that. And she's like, you'll go see Deadpool. I'm like, it'll make you feel better. Yes, we'll go. (laughs) Fifteen minutes in, I am the loudest person laughing in the theater. And so I was blown away by the first one. So the second one, like, it doesn't have Tim Miller. And I'm like, is that the missing missing ingredient? And it doesn't have Junkie XL doing the score. And I'm like, we'll see what happens. And I'm I'm like, Cable was good. Domino was fantastic. They, They were the two standouts for me.
1: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, to say, yeah,
1: this is just how
0: my mind works and just like movie geeks get together and we'll just have endless tangents that we'll never be able to stop. But, That's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, and so I look forward to Fallout and see what happens afterwards. But I'll um, ask uh, so your final thoughts and your overall feelings on the World franchise and do you have a ranking of the movies?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Well, let's start with my thoughts on the franchise. I, I think if you would have told me in 1996 that, that in 2018 we'll still be making these movies and Tom Cruise will still be in them, I would have been like, what are you out of your mind? So that's just an achievement and i think we should we should acknowledge just how unique and special that is uh uh and and like i said i've reached a point where i started out being very apathetic towards the movies to the point now where every time a new one comes out i'm excited and that's that's uh, i think a lot of people are like that you know i see among my students who are like 18 19 they're like oh new mission impossible which is weird you know you wouldn't think that that because tom cruise is not somebody that's really in there uh wheelhouse but but uh that says something about these movies as far as a ranking goes i'm gonna go five four three one two
0: i can agree with that um my feelings is yeah it's it's like i could take your feelings on, on like the first movie like yeah we're gonna do this in 2018 Like. No, the, the society's Sick. gonna fall apart with Y two K. Duh, we're not gonna <laughs> li- we're gonna live to Y. We're not gonna see 2018. Um, no, it's like that joke, and uh, also an almost famous when Jimmy Fallon says, "Like, do you think uh, Mick Jagger's gonna be up there, fifty years old, shaking his thing?" No, he's not. And obviously, <laughs> hindsight being the the, the punchline. Um, yeah, it's something that like, is continuing to get better and better as it goes, which the franchise rarely does. It really does. I mean like how often do you see a franchise that continues to get better? It's usually a law of diminishing returns. And with here I'm just continually surprised and excited whenever a new Mission Possible comes out. And my rankings probably go four, five, three, one, two. Um no disrespect to two or, or one. It's just like I just watch these more. I mean, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation, it's like it's like by a nose. Like it's a yeah. photo finish. Like that's how my rankings are for those two movies. I agree. All right. And so I want to say thank you, Zach, you taking time out of your day. Do talk all about mission possible?
1: Oh man. What a great way to start my weekend.
0: Awesome. And if you want people to follow you on social media and your shows, where can they find you?
1: Oh, um, well, you can find me uh, on Twitter, uh, at Zachy's Corner, that's Z-A-K-I-S Corner. Uh, it's also my website, just at com, And um, my podcast, I have two podcasts. One is called The Movie Film Podcast, which comes out every two weeks or so. And I co-host it with my friend Brian Hall, who writes for uh, the Disney Junior TV show Puppy Dog Pals. And we talk about new releases and all the latest news out of Hollywood. We also do movie commentary tracks. And we just dropped two commentaries this past week, one for The Dark Knight and one uh, for the 30th anniversary of Die Hard where we were joined by uh, Paul Shirey, who's the editor-in-chief of JoeBlow.com. Um, I also host a show called Nostalgia Theater, which is every month, and that's where I uh, interview the filmmakers and fans of the things that that I, I have loved growing up. My next episode drops this coming week, and it'll be my interview with Stephen Weber, who starred on the TV show Wings in the 90s, and he was also in Aaron Sorkin's um, uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and he's also currently in uh, 13 Reasons Why.
0: Awesome, yeah. Uh, it, it's so funny. Like, so you just said wings. Just Tony Shalhoub just came to my mind. I'm like, oh wings. There, sorry. <laughs> <A laughs> that's that like the first image that came to my mind. Um, but that's, <laughs> but that's fantastic. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two, my Instagram at t Rooney Ten Twelve, and my my YouTube page through the Lens Productions for my latest short film. Thanks for the ride is up. And my other podcast, please rewind for the rf 4 com or for RF4RM retro show. You can find that show and all the other shows on that network at RF4RM.com. If you like this show, um, give us a five-star written review on iTunes. It helps get the word out there. And it really just, I know it's a little thing, but it really helps people who are going out of the way to make creative content for people. It shows that it's being appreciated and just gives us, infinite amount of more energy and joy of doing this because sometimes it's like you feel like you're talking to a vacuum and like yes like yeah it is nice to like just to express yourself but every now and then just like knowing that people enjoy it it is makes it that much more special so if you're able to do that i say thank you in advance and say since i'm giving out thank you so i want to say thank you again zach for taking time out of your weekend to talk mission possible
1: thank you so much for having me
0: All right. Come back next time. We'll be continuing my One Good Scare franchise or One Good Scare uh, retrospective, I should say, talking about the Halloween franchise as Mike and I talk about the 20th anniversary of the Halloween franchise with Halloween H2O. So come back for that. Fight the friction!